Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So as we mentioned before, there's Guru Purnima coming up uh, tomorrow. So every full moon day, we celebrate a, celebrate a Purnima. Purnima means a full moon. And there are several Purnimas. You know, there's the uh, uh, Gauranga Purnima, which is the celebration of a saint, Lord Chaitanya, from the 15th century. And this coming Purnima is the Buddha Purnima in May, the celebration of the uh, teacher Bhagavan Buddha. Now coming up is the Guru Purnima in the month of Shravan, the full moon celebrating the Guru the preceptor of spiritual life. And hence today, we will discuss in depth the Guru. Yes, Claire says, Ganesha has uh, removed the darkness. I usually say, Asatoma Sadgamaya, Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya, from from darkness unto light. Usually it works. (laughs) Today it's... uh... So today we're going to talk about the Guru. What is the Guru? Who is the Guru? Who can be a Guru? And do you need one? What's the guru for? And can that function be dispensed with entirely? To a Saint Anthony. <laughs> Saint Anthony, pray for us, yes. <laughs> so um, you doubtlessly by now have heard a lot about the guru. In the 60s in America, there was a bit of a guru craze. And from that, a severe backlash against guru yoga. That is, uh, the guru as a pathway to spiritual liberation. Yet, despite all of what you might have heard about the guru, most of the myths surrounding the role of a guru in a spiritual aspirant's life is actually true. Um, it, 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 it's a very important thing to consider in our spiritual tradition that a guru is indispensable. You know, so we'll take a look at a few scriptural examples for a claim like that. Uh, and I'll read you a few lines from various scriptures over the years. The first is from the Kula Arnava Tantra. Um, 6th century text. And in the Kula Anarva Tantra, verse 15, 61 to 64, you hear this line, a mantra without consciousness is useless. Now the word they use in the Sanskrit is mantra chaitanya, uh, which can mean conscious mantra or empowered mantra or more colloquially potentized mantra. So doubtlessly, for those of you who have heard about tantra, who are new to Tantra and who are veterans of Tantra, you doubtlessly have heard that Tantra is a path that uses exclusively almost as its practice chanting, chanting sacred words, sacred sentences known as mantras. And you must have heard in some point, some point or other that you need a guru to have a mantra, that the guru must give you a mantra, must potentize a mantra. And I know we had that lecture a couple of weeks ago just about mantra, and we talked about this a lot. So today we'll elaborate a little more. What is it about a guru that is significant when it comes to mantras? Why is it that if you just recite a mantra without the guru's blessing or potentization, that mantra is useless? Now, in that same uh, text, the Kula Arnava Tantra, you hear about what a useful mantra is. Um, And there are a few things, a few symptoms that come about as a result of chanting such a mantra. The first is the knots of the heart and throat are pierced. 
Uh, in this scripture, it's called Hridaya Granti, which means heart knot. Any kind of blockage you feel in the emotional center, perhaps, any kind of blockage to truthfulness and expression, a true mantra will pierce through those knots with only one recitation. With the recitation of a true mantra, the limbs will feel invigorated. So the mantra should energize you immediately. There should be tears of joy, aksha, tears. There should be goose flesh, bodily ecstasy, and tremulous speech. I know we just said throat chakra will open, but also they talk about like the faltering of speech, you know. Uh, it's kind of like uh, a, a holy ghost infusion, a feeling of the body being overwhelmed by a divine energy that completely redefines your experience of the body and this moment. Such is the power of a potentized mantra. In many tantric scriptures, they say that an unpotentized mantra is no better than repeating the word dog, 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 dog over and over, you know? <laughs> so there's some secret sauce, some secret juice that the mantra needs that apparently only the guru can bestow. So we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, how is it that a guru potentizes a mantra? So here at the top of the lecture, I'll just come out and say the first thing to remember when we talk about the guru, and of course, I'm going to, God willing, present some historical context for why it is in South Asian culture we care about the guru, certainly. But right now, let's just, you know, get one thing out of the way. Guru is not a person. The guru is a function. As we said earlier, the guru plays a role in your life. And that role, to a large extent, is independent of that person. Hmm? Not entirely. You know, the guru must walk the walk, as you will see in a little bit. But that's not the function the guru is playing. Partly. But the real function is nothing to do with the personality. Nothing to do with the personhood or the individual that you come to associate guruship with. You know, that's the first thing to get out of the way. Now, such a function uh, is fourfold. The first, the guru function is living scripture. Without the guru, uh, all you have is dogma. You know, all you have are these texts and uh, it can be very difficult to navigate the jungle of scripture on your own without a guide. You know, so at the very least, a guru plays the role of scriptural guide. The guru is the Sherpa that navigates safely for you up the steep and treacherous slopes of the Himalayas of your learning. Hmm? So that's the first thing. The guru is living scripture. The second thing is the guru conveys initiation. The guru's function is a kind of spiritual transmission, an energetic initiation, if you will. And in that is included the empowering of mantras, which we'll talk about. Third thing. The guru's role, uh, quite apart from teaching scripture, quite apart from performing initiations, the guru's role is to simply be. In other words, the guru, as, as George Furstein says beautifully, the guru broadcasts reality. You know, so the guru is there to demonstrate to you, not through speech, not through action, sometimes using speech and action, but mostly through his, her, their simple being. Their simple presence, the natural ease of being that permeates the guru, that pervades the room when the guru enters, that uh, effulgently emanates from the guru as a fragrance would emanate from a rose, that's the guru's central function. 
to do guru yoga doesn't necessarily include talking to the guru learning scripture from the guru it doesn't even necessarily mean formal or informal initiations from the guru you don't even have to receive a mantra from the guru you simply have to be in his her or their presence that alone is enough to spiritualize you you know dig that and we're going to talk a little bit about how that can be and finally um the guru is there as an example of the possibilities in your life you see if we talked about the christ if we talked about the buddha peace and blessings be upon both of them if we talked about rumi peace and blessings be upon them they might not be living experiences in your life the christ is a name in the book the buddha is a legend rumi is someone's someone whose poetry made you cry and you pulled it out on a date one time but he's not yet there in the room with you you haven't hung out with them yet and as a result you haven't yet met the fullest expression of life except in books it's quite a different thing to read about the christ and then to meet him you know and you can just imagine when you hear about the christ something in you resonates there's something in you that remembers you know uh, and largely it's because the christ is more you than you are you You know, you are the Christ making a pretense at not being the Christ. So when you meet someone like that who is so extraordinarily ordinary, who is so present, it naturally reminds you of the possibilities of your own life. You know, the life of the Christ, the life of Ramakrishna Paramahansa, the life of uh, Ramana Maharshi. Those people show you what's possible for you too, and it's tremendously inspiring to see that such people exist. So when the guru shows up in your life it is a living example of walking the walk. You know um we made the joke several classes ago before you meet the guru uh you know you meet people and they behave the way you expect them to behave. Do you know what I mean? You know that they are part of the same game that we're a part of. We go to a party and we're interested in fortifying our fictional sense of self our ego we're playing this game of collecting money of collecting prestige when we were born we were conditioned into a society and handed a checklist and the checklist was how to be a good person checklist the good girl good boy good person checklist or go to a good college okay check uh and if you didn't do that a oh, tremendous guilt you know okay get a good job with a good starting salary check and if you didn't do that tremendous guilt and uh okay now white picket fence dog get married okay family check and if you didn't do that you know um and all the while you are under the assumption that if you don't check those boxes nobody will love you and not just that you are under the assumption that the people in your life love you for not who you uh, in a way who you are right and in a way what you do for them so mother loves you because you're a good child you know a wife husband partner loves you because you're a good boyfriend girlfriend partner husband etc dog loves you because you feed it actually the dog loves you a little more unconditionally but you see don't feed it for a while it'll run away almost every encounter you have in your life is conditional it depends on you functioning a certain way being a certain way notice all the roles we take on when with people With some people we're a certain way with another person we're a different way because we recognize that we're playing different roles and all our life we connect with people not soul to soul but role to role that's why many of us wake up in bed next to the person that we love realizing that we know nothing about them 
you know, for all the conversations we've had over the last 50 years, we don't really know who they are deep down inside. We know they like the color purple and we know their favorite flower is sunflower. We know what their favorite restaurant is, but that doesn't really get to the core of who they are. The phenomena, the complex phenomena known as person is somehow elusive even after all that intellectual interrogation, after all that time spent together, you know? So when we connect role to role, there's a kind of superficiality to life. But who can blame us? That's all we know. We go to a party, we look into someone's eyes and we're like, I see you. You're playing the game that I'm playing. And they look into your eyes and they're like, I see you. You are also fortifying the ego. You are also playing the game of accumulating wealth and reputation. And we're all here in this kind of conspiracy right? We're playing this social contract in which we buy into that role and we enforce that role in one another. So this is the predicament of life. Every now and then though, you encounter a person who does not play by those rules. Now, sometimes you think it's Keith Richards, (laughs) you know, you meet like some kind of eccentric gypsy character, you know, like Keith Richards. I say gypsy with love since they are after all the Romani people, Northwestern Indians, and they were largely responsible for bringing Tantra to the West, which of course culminated in tarot and all of that. But, but for now um, you meet people like that and you sense that they're eccentric and they're a little bit outside and you're like, you know, it's like, um, what's that movie? The Zorba, the Greek you know, every now and then, you know that movie, the, the, the stodgy professor goes to Greece and then he meets this eccentric who teaches him how to dance in the rain. Uh, every now and then you meet someone in your life who helps break you out of that box. But you find they're also subscribed to some other set of boxes. They're also trying to be someone. You know, in the, re- in the land of Bohemia, there are boxes to check too. Don't go to college, <laughs> you know, uh, be poor, poor. You know, there's like these other rules. So wherever you go, you see rule players, rule followers. You see roles. Um, in, in, in effect, you see masks. And that's just our experience. So what do we do? Then we read about beings who didn't wear masks, who had no pretenses, who were simply there. Um, And it's one thing to read about them. It's quite another to meet them. Some of you might have looked into pictures, you know, like Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj or the Christ or like even the the photographs are very good. If you can look at Ananda Maima or Ramakrishna, you know, the photographs of those saints, look carefully into their eyes and you might actually after a while start feeling frightened. You might feel frightened. You're like, oh, this person is seeing through me. You know, this person doesn't care about the facade I've spent 40 years building. This person doesn't really care about my erudition and how many books I can cite. I'm a charming dinner guest, but my charm seems to be completely lost on this person. They don't care about the sins I've done in my life or all the harm I've done to others. They seem to be looking past all of that. And somehow, I feel more seen than I've ever been seen before. By someone who has not asked me once, about my personal history. In fact, couldn't care less about where I was born, how I grew up, how I spent my time. None of those details seem to matter to a guru. They don't even care where you're going. Just where you are is all they need. And they look at you like that and you feel in the force of their gaze, like the melting of frost in the first uh, rays of, of what, what comes after winter? I forget. Tropical, trop- South India is tropical. But you know what I mean? At the end of the winter, there's that. Is it, it's not spring. 
Yeah, it's spring. It's spring. Yes. The, the, the spring comes up. Yes. Thank you. The spring comes up and the ice melts away, you know, or the dream vanishes before the first rays of dawn. Um, and, and you feel so naked, so vulnerable. And it's yeah, fake spring, then winter, then real spring. Yes. <laughs> fake spring to dispel the autumn. That's like the, you know, the eccentric who's not really the guru, the manic pixie dream person. But the real guru is one who breaks you out of all of that. And when you are with them, you finally feel love. For, in fact, perhaps for the first time in your life, except for the mother. Motherly love has a very special place in Indian literature since it is often idealized as the most unconditional love. Yet for a lot of us, that wasn't our experience. <laughs> but anyway, the guru, except for perhaps the mother, is the first person in your life who loves you regardless of who you are. There's nothing that you need to do for the guru's love. There's no particular way you need to be for the guru's love. The very fact that you are is enough for that love. It's not a love you earn. And for many of us, we can't understand that love. <laughs> we don't get it. We don't know what it is to be loved in any other way than the way we've been loved so far. So the guru is a profound moment and many of us will miss it. You know, If you haven't yet met the guru in your life, it is because we aren't yet ready for that guru. You know, because make no mistake, as our scripture says, and as our personal experience will eventually testify, when the student is ready, the guru will appear. It's a fact. It's a law of nature. As sure as gravity, the guru will manifest in your life when you are open for that. The way an orchid opens up in the summer rain to receive the radiance of the atmosphere, so too will you open up and so too will the rain come when it's time. You know, so given that, given all of that preamble about the guru, uh, let's just get right into it because I do want to tell you some stories about gurus, like contemporary gurus, like Ramana Maharshi and, and even Maharaji and Ram Das's story and all of that. Uh, Milarepa and Marpa and, and so many stories, you know. So let's just get right into it. Historical context where does the guru idea come from? We say it goes as far back as our earliest spirituality, perhaps 9,000 years ago. We look at the Upanishads, which is the ancient Gnostic texts of India, which are sometimes dated to the fourth millennium. More conservatively, it's dated sometimes to the first or second millennium. However you date it, it's old. It's friggin' old. It's like the oldest litany that exists, and it's the bedrock of all Indian spirituality. Now, if you look at those foundations, if you look at the Upanishads, the formula of every Upanishad is a transmission directly from teacher to student, an oral and energetic transmission from one person to one or several other persons, you see. So for instance, in the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad, it's the father dividing wealth between children and the father teaches the children. In the Chandogya Upanishad, it's so sweet. It's so heartwarming. It's the father and his son. And he's always saying to him, my dear, you know, and every line is kind of preceded by my dear, the substance of the stars and the substance of the fire and the substance of, of God are all one substance, the Brahman. And, you know, the boy in the Chandogya Upanishad, being a young man, is totally disinterested in his father's teaching. You know, he's like, oh, come on, dad. I want to go. I want to go to the club or something. And then the father ingeniously says, but I'm teaching you about you. And everybody, especially adolescents, everybody's favorite subject is themselves, right? Suddenly the boy's ears perk. I'm like, huh? You're teaching me about God, but you're also teaching me about me? 
I am God? You know, like, and that's how the father kind of gets him to learn. So all the Upanishads feature a guru, a teacher, and a shisha, a student. And the transmission is always oral. It's always direct. Now, of course, there's a little bit of a dialectic going on. You know, the student often debates and disagrees and questions. So the first thing you must understand is that Indians are not a dogmatic or a Bible thumping kind of culture. We are not into saying it as it is. It's just like, okay, now you have to believe it. Belief matters nothing. We don't care at all what you believe. It's about what you experience. It's about what you feel. You know, they say uh, uh, you have to believe it before you see it or something like that. Or uh, it's not real faith. If you have to see it, we say, bah, if God exists, you must see it. And we have, and you can too. That's the promise of Indian spirituality. There are no uh, specific prophets who are special and different from you. We're all uh, equally potentially divine. You know, I'll see it when I believe it. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's that book, right? I think I have it. Uh, here it is. You'll, what is it? You'll, you'll see it when you believe it, right? That psychologist wrote that book, Wayne Dyer or something. Yes. It's kind of like one of those early law of manifestation books that got very popular here. Um, and we say, bah, you know, bah humbug, as they might say. Um, experience God. He, she, it is yours to experience and give me three years. We'll show you, you know, practice daily and we'll show you. That's the guarantee or your money back. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, such confidence, right? And these gurus would teach their shishas, not through dogma, not through this is true because I said it, but through experience. And a lot of that experience came through philosophical inquiry. It's like, look at your own experience of life. Is it not obvious that you aren't the mind, nor are you the body? Isn't it obvious that what you are is awareness? And so why should you worry about the ailments and death of the body? Why should you worry about the grief, praise, or blame of the mind? It's one thing to say you are not the mind and body. It's quite another to show you. We're not satisfied simply telling you. We want to show you through your own experience. You know, Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda, peace and blessings be upon him, was the first uh, uh, ambassador of yoga to the West. And he was the one who really popularized yoga in the mainstream cultural consciousness. But if today a lot of the modern yogis were to listen to what Vivekananda said, they would be horrified, you know, because he was saying, you're not a body. So you don't really need that kind of practice. I mean, why develop and condition something that is not you, that is a dream, you know? <laughs> Vivekananda was teaching the higher yogas, bhakti, karma, raja, jnana, uh, you know. And his guru, Ramakrishna, who we will talk about today, often spoke ill of hatha yoga as a kind of bodily obsessed thing. And lo and behold, was he wrong? <laughs> now, remember, I say this to you as a Hatha yogi, right? <laughs> so with some love, no love lost. Okay, so um, the Upanishads wanted to teach by experience. For that, you needed a guru. And for that, you needed some lively debate. But if I'm not the body, why do I say, ow, when you pinch me? You know, you needed that kind of back and forth. So the guru would teach the shisha through experience, through philosophical inquiry, you know, um, how to experience for themselves what the guru experienced. And a lot of times that might have happened through broadcast. Now, the Bhagavad Gita, which is the segment in the Mahabharata that is so beloved, is in fact the perhaps most beloved scripture in India, is itself an Upanishad. Why? Because the format is there. Teacher and student, right? Krishna, uh, the charioteer, 
and Arjuna, the student. And you have this lively dialectic between the two. Krishna is teaching Arjuna, who at first is hesitant and resistant and later inquiring, you know, and every time Arjuna asks a question, another chapter of the Gita opens. <laughs> so you get 18 chapters, a lot of it. So in the end, Arjuna learns to keep quiet because he knows if he asks a question, another chapter will come and times he's got to go to war. So <laughs> Arjuna wisens up in the end and keeps mum. But the idea is you should question, you should debate and disagree. Uh, your reason and your intellect is very important in that relationship between Shisha and Guru. So the Bhagavad Gita is such an Upanishad. Look at the scholastic writing of Saint Anselm. Is it not Upanishadic? You know, if you look at St. Anselm's three dialogues, it's literally the, the two characters in that text are teacher and student. And they have a dialectic on the nature of truth, on the nature of free will, on why it is that Satan fell, you know, all of that. Uh, and and I, I really highly recommend the text on the fall of the devil. Really great text. It's an Upanishad, you see. So in our tradition, the guru principle has persisted all throughout history. There has always been a transmission from one uh, central spiritual authority to a student or maybe two or three or small group. Usually it's one-to-one -one transmission, you know. Now, having said that, uh, the next thing we should consider is what that word even means, guru. Is it not to say enough to say acharya? Acharya means teacher. Isn't it enough to have an acharya? No, our tradition delineates between a teacher and a guru. A guru is a teacher plus something else. And a guru might not actually even need to be a teacher. A guru, if you look literally at that word, is one who dispels darkness. Gu being darkness, ra or ru being the dispelling thereof. So the guru dispels darkness, perhaps by bringing in the light of knowledge, but not knowledge in the sense that we usually use that word. We're not really talking about conceptual or theoretical knowledge. You can learn chemistry from anybody. But you cannot learn spirituality except from an enlightened master. See, you can learn the concepts of spirituality from anybody. Any monkey can teach you Advaita Vedanta. Uh, any monkey can teach you so much Advaita that you can write a book eventually on Advaita Vedanta. You can fill your head to the brim with these concepts and impress all the dinner guests that come to your house. But that's not spirituality. That's mental masturbation, you know, and that you can learn anywhere. Drunken monkey. <laughs> yes, drunken monkeys make the best teachers. No, the, the monkey must be drunk though. If it's just any monkey. <laughs> yes. So uh, any, anybody can teach you that stuff. Spirituality though, you cannot learn through the mind, through concepts. You can only learn through the being. So you can actually only exclusively learn through sp spirituality through one who knows. Because we can only offer others something of ourselves. You know, we can only offer our own being. Now, notice this, if you go and listen to a pundit, you know, a great scholar in India, eloquently, beautifully, artfully expound upon the Vedas, you might think it very pretty, but you won't be moved. It won't be transformative. You'll go home and forget all about it over chai, you know. Um, but then say you go to a cobbler and that cobbler happens to be a realized master. He will fix your shoes and look up at you and say, ah, you know, and, and you'll go home, which means uh, what nice weather we're having. And you'll go home uh, and somehow you will feel something, a vibration, and, and you'll just maybe put down the cigarette or, or pick up the Gita or something, you know. Um, it's, it's not about what is said. It's something else. 
There must be a shakti around that being in the room. You must feel it like waves emanating off of that being, you know. Otherwise, it's just concepts that we're learning. So that's one thing. We delineate the guru from the acharya. The guru as a kind of presence beyond what they teach from the teacher that just teaches concepts with no presence. Now that word guru actually has a linguistic significance too. So this is the next idea to convey. Uh, linguistically, the guru in the Sanskrit uh, system, which Panini formulated, the guru is the stress of a word. You know, so this is a linguistic idea. So when you look at the word, like say, Mahabharata, typically we say Mahabharata. Now there are two long syllables. Remember in Sanskrit, it can be ha or it can be ha, ba or ba. So in that word, the ma, ra, ta are all short syllables, ma, ra, ta. The ha and ba are long syllables. So when you pronounce that word, it's pronounced Mahabharata, you know. But we kind of drop the first guru and we just say Mahabharata. So when you consider linguistically what a guru is, the guru is the stress of any word. It's the accent of the word. It's the heaviest part of the word. Now, cross this with the Gospel of John. And you get a very interesting idea. Do you see? You know, the word, the logos, the word that was with God, the word that was God. What's the stress of that word? The guru. When you meet the guru, you will see what God is stressing when she speaks. <laughs> the Christ, the Buddha, Rumi, all of you, you are the stress, you're the accent of the word of God. You know? Uh, it's a very beautiful idea when you consider the linguistic significance of guru. Now, uh, colloquially, guru just means heavy one. <laughs> it's not a fat joke. It, it, it can be, and some gurus are very big, but heavy one, you know, heavy one, just someone with authority, someone that's a heavyweight, a spiritual heavyweight. So that's what the word guru literally means. We'll talk in a little bit as to uh, um, some of the qualifications of a guru, like who can be a guru. Actually, let's just do that right away. I feel like this is a good place. Okay, so I'll read to you now from the Kula Arnava Tantra, verses 13, 104 to 5, and verses 107 to 10. And these words in the Kula Arnava are spoken from Shiva. So the Kula Arnava Tantra is Shiva speaking to Parvati. He's teaching. So this is what he says. I'm reading you the first teen translation. Uh, I like this translation a lot. Gurus are as numerous as lamps in every house. You, you can imagine Shiva's uh, kind of uh, sarcasm here. Gurus are as numerous as lamps in every house. But oh goddess, difficult it is to find a guru who lights up everything like a sun. You see, he's delineating between the gurus, the so-called teachers who are like lamps in a house with the guru who is like the sun. You know, then he goes on to say, Shiva, gurus who are proficient in the Vedas, textbooks, and so on. The word here in Sanskrit is tantras, Vedas, Agamas, tantras, yogas. So in, in, here it's, uh, it's uh, everything that you might consider spiritual scripture. First in translated just as textbooks, but in, in the Sanskrit it's Vedas, Agamas, tantras, yogas. Gurus who are proficient in all of these are numerous. But, O oh goddess, difficult to find is a guru who is proficient in supreme truth. Gurus who know petty mantras and herbal concoctions are numerous. But difficult to find here on earth is one who knows the mantras described in the nigamas, agamas, and textbooks. 
Gurus who rob their disciples of their wealth are numerous. You know many like that. Oh, but goddess, uh, but oh goddess, difficult it is to find a guru who removes the disciples' suffering. Numerous here on earth are those who are intent on social class, stage of life, and family. But he who is devoid of all concerns is a guru, and such is difficult to find. An intelligent man should choose a guru by whose contact the supreme bliss is attained. Mahasukha is the word here. And only such a guru and none others. Now, in the Kula Narva Tantra, verses 1370, uh, which is a little earlier, we get these lines. Oh, beloved, he whose vision is stable without object. Uh, the, literally, ekagrata, the ability to stay focused whose mind is equally firm without support and whose breath is stable without effort, such is a guru. So you're getting some qualifications now. That person must have sahaja stiti samadhi, which means natural, spontaneous equanimity of mind. The mind must be firm and balanced. Next, Shiva says, he who really knows the classification of the principles of existence, tattva, from Shiva down to the earth element or prithvi is deemed a param guru, supreme guru. Uh, by knows, we don't just mean he held up a picture for you on Zoom. You know, <laughs> we mean someone who actually has experienced all the levels of, of being. Uh, remember that picture we saw with the 36 tattvas? Yeah, that's what's referenced here. Oh, beloved, he who really knows the identity of the body, pinda, that is uh, illusory, and the macrocosm, brahmanda, he who knows the secret about the head and the number of bones and hairs is a guru and none other. That's a bit of a mysterious line. Nobody really knows what that one means. He, uh, this I like a lot. Oh, hi, Lauren. Hi, good to see you. Now, he who is skilled in the 84 distinct postures, such as the lotus posture, and who knows the eightfold yoga is deemed a supreme guru. Isn't that interesting? So here, uh, this is unique to Tantra, by the way. So in Tantra, uh, as is true for Catholicism, a saint or a guru must demonstrate miracles. In other words, the guru, if the guru is really the guru, should be able to, you know, sit in lotus posture. <laughs> why not? It's God. Why can't God sit in lotus posture if she cho so chooses? You know, why shouldn't she be skilled in the 84 yoga poses? And remember, the yoga poses aren't just athletic feats. No, the yoga poses in Tantra are mudras, meaning they are signs or seals of an aspirant's spiritual um, uh, aptitude. Now, of course, if that were true, then every Instagram model doing Pincha Mayurasan would be fit to be a guru, right? <laughs> so clearly we see some problems there. And certainly there are gurus who don't mind being sick, who don't mind their bodies developing cancers. Um, and when asked to heal those cancers, they scoff at such an idea. Not to say they can't, but they won't, as we will see in a little bit. Um, and Anthony says, do you distinguish between a Diksha Guru and a Siksha Guru? Absolutely. So you'll see in Tantra, there are some different, like the biggest distinction is Uppa Guru and Sadguru, which we will talk about in a little bit. So yeah, great. Diksha means initiation, by the way, you know. So there you go. You've got some, uh, some qualifications for the guru according to Tantra. And you've also got some warnings. You know, not anybody can be a guru. Gurus are not easy to find. So the question is, how do you find them? Okay, 
So we're going to talk, and, and, and the question is, you don't. <laughs> Actually, the answer is you don't find them. They find you. And when they find you, you'll know. <laughs> if you're, if you're, you're wondering, is that my guru or not? It, probably not. When you meet your guru, you will know. So let's start talking about these four functions then. So as mentioned at the top of this lecture, the guru provides four functions, four roles. Lauren, your hair is incredible. I really like it. So four functions, yes? Hi, Lauren. <laughs> four functions. The first is living scripture. Now, you've probably noticed how a lot of contemporary religions have totally lost their way because of a poor understanding of scripture. How is it that someone who has never read the New Testament in Greek can preach to you about what it says? How is it that someone who has never read the Hebrew or Aramaic Old Testament can talk about God who appears in several names, Shaddai, Elkai, El, Eloah, Vedaath, how is it that someone who is not versed in the nuances of each of these God names, how can such a person teach scripture? How can someone who has not read the living Quran tell you about the 99 names of Allah? How can such a person verily say, Alhamdulillah, who has not surrendered everything to God? If that person is teaching religion from the stomach and not from the heart, then such a word as Alhamdulillah, such a word as Jesus the Christ, such a word as Brahma becomes but ash in a mouth that Jesus called no better than a viper's mouth. Beware the brood of vipers. They say, Lord, Lord, yet they know me not. Yes, in Matthew, Jesus says that. So clearly, being able to recite from holy books is not enough. And clearly, any kind of religious tradition that premises the entirety of its tradition on one book is a little bit in danger, right? But that's a poor representation of the religions of the world. They are not one book religions. The Bible is several books. You know, Kings is several books. The New Testament stands apart as four separate gospels. Um, and each of them have commentaries like the Philokalia in the Greek or Russian Orthodox Christian tradition. St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Evagrius of Pontus much earlier have contributed great texts that for many Christians out, uh, throughout history have been considered scripture, source scripture, you know. Um, Aquinas and Anselm and Augustine, all those texts in the Vatican Library, all those commentarial scriptures, all of that is just as much part of the canon as the Bible is the canon. You see, in Islam, it's not just the Quran, it's also the Hadith, the commentaries. In Judaism, it's not just the Torah or the, it's, it's the Talmud, it's the uh, Sefer Yetzirah, it's the Zohar, it's uh, you know, the Kabbalah as, as expounded by the Sefer Bahir and all of that. And in India, it's the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the Bhashyas, like the Brahma Sutra and the various Agamas of Tantra, Kula Narva Tantra, Yoga Shika, Yoga Bija. You're starting to see it's a little bit of a jungle, isn't it? A lot of people have said a lot of things and a lot of those people were illumined sages. And so all of the things that they said were true. How to deal with contradictions then? <laughs> How to work out what all of this stuff means? Now, the answer is twofold. One, if you can learn it all, you know, you can learn it all and you should. Uh, anybody on the spiritual path should be a voracious uh, 
devourer of comparative religion, if only to see how it's all the same, you know? So you can start to learn it all, but sooner or later, you'll get a little confused. There's just too much thinking, too many concepts, and not all of them make sense immediately. Uh, some of those teachings, like when the Christ says, he whosoever loves father and mother more than me is not fit to worship me. That's a hard one, huh? You know, teachings like deny thyself or love of money is evil. It's much easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than a rich man. To... All these teachings are fierce and if misunderstood can be dangerous as recent history has shown us. So how do we navigate the jungle of scripture? It requires one who is versed in the spirit of those scriptures. One, not necessarily who is versed in the word, but in the spirit or meaning of the word, in the thought in the word. As Rumi says, what the nest is to the, sorry, what the bird is to the nest, what the uh, river is to the riverbed, the meaning is to the word and the soul is to the body. So in the body of all the scriptures in the world, there is a soul. You know, in all of those words, there is a meaning. And as our Vedas said 9,000 years ago, verse 1, 164.46 in the Rig Veda, the verse, Ekam Sat, Vipra Bahuda Vadanti. Truth is one, though different sages in different places call it by different names. If someone has tasted that one truth, that person can expound any scripture. So you can put in front of them some Baha'i faith stuff, some Zoroastrianism stuff. You can show them a verse from some book they haven't read. But if it is a true book, meaning if it's Sad Agama or true scripture, they will be able to comment upon it in a way that's inspiring to you. In other words, they can breathe life into scriptures. So think of it this way. Every now and then you see a riverbed a great riverbed. And you think to yourself, ah, uh, a, a tremendous river once flowed here. You know, a religion once thrived here and along its banks, a civilization sprang up. But alas, that river has long since dried up. And at its banks, the adherents of such an exoteric institution are now trying to slake their thirst with naught else but dust and air, you know? And like this, you are turned off by many major exoteric religions, you know, because it's a dried up riverbed. But then you go to an art museum or you listen to a piece of music or you make love or you meet someone and you encounter living spirituality. There is a current, there is a life there. And it's almost as if you struck water. And many of those streams die out, they run out, you know. But the guru is the river, see? So when the guru comes to a dried up riverbed, the guru will flow in that riverbed, giving it life anew. So when a guru exists within a spiritual tradition, that guru enlivens that tradition. Without St. John of the cross, without Teresa of Avila, without uh, you know, all the great rabbis and without Rumi and Shams and all the great Islamic uh, Sufi mystics, without all of those people, these religions cannot renew and, and refresh. You see? So they breathe life into the religion. That's what we mean when the guru is living scripture. The guru lives what's written. And by virtue of that, can explain to you what is written, can guide you through the scripture. The point to make here is the guru will never contradict scripture. You see? So you must apply satarka or reason. If the guru says something that contradicts the scriptures of the world, A, it's not a real guru, or B, you don't understand the scriptures well enough. <laughs>
<laughs> which is a bit of a predicament. I know. Sorry, it takes a little bit to kind of work that paradox out. Uh, <laughs> seems convenient. I know. I know. But let's just move on to an example. Ramana Maharshi, at age sixteen, was instantly enlightened. He lost his mother, or was it father? I, um, father. Sorry, father. He lost his father. Many of them lost their mothers, you know, like many gurus have lost their mothers at a young age. Uh, but Ramana Maharshi uh, lost his father. And one day, so stricken by the death of his father, he went upstairs to a room, laid on the floor in corpse pose, and just inquired into the nature of death. What is it for a body to die? Where is Appa? You know, South Indian boy, Appa Inga, you might have thought of him saying, where is my father? And he started to ask in a very sincere way, you know, a young boy, who am I? Am I going to die? And, and if this body dies, will I die? And he just did this inquiry for a little while. And in a flash of lightning, he was awakened. He was a good student. But after that, he failed all his classes. He had no interest in school anymore. Sooner or later, he dropped out of school and he just walked off. He went up to the mountain Arunchala, sat in a cave and disappeared. Even his parent, mother didn't know where he was. Can you imagine what a shock she must have gotten when she came to pick him up from school and he just wasn't there. Eventually they found him. And by then, many people had already started to gather around him. Such was his spiritual fragrance. He was instantly realized. Now, in the beginning, he didn't speak. You know, He wasn't interested in being the teacher. He wasn't interested in playing the guru role. He was simply content with being absorbed in that state of nirvikalpa samadhi or sahaja stiti samadhi. I feel comfortable using technical terms here because this is generally a rather advanced room, uh, but feel free to like ask for you know, clarifications if you need. So there he was in Arunchala, completely absorbed in Satchit Ananda, completely absorbed in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Then I didn't want to do anything but that. And bugs had eaten his body. So unconscious he was of his body, you know. And many people are like, oh my God, what a, what a world-renouncing body-negative uh, uh, teacher. Eh, live a little bit more, you know, and you'll see the wisdom in it. Continue to delight your body and if you want, and, and we'll be waiting for you <laughs> when you finally finish with that game. But yeah, you see, he had given up. He's finished with his body. He's just in Mahasamadhi. Uh, not Mahasamadhi, sorry. He's just in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Um, and eventually his mother came and moved by compassion. You see all these great teachers. It's compassion that brings them back from that plane. Moved by compassion for his mother and for the plight of those still in bondage, he began to teach. But his preferred method of teaching was silence. This kind of talks a little bit about our next point, which is spiritual transmission. His ideal teaching was silence, you know. But when he did speak, speak he would often ask people to think for themselves. He would say, ask yourself, who am I? That's all you need to become liberated. Just ask you, who am I? Every day you ask, who am I? If you feel pain in the body, say, who am I? Am I the body such that I should be saying I am in pain? But when he was asked about scripture, note this, he was able to elucidate eloquently, precisely, and perfectly scripture. Whether it was Islamic scripture, Christian scripture, Hindu scripture, he was able to just comment Brilliantly. How could he have done that? He never learned a day's worth of scriptural knowledge. Well, yes, he, I think he was a Brahmin boy, but he didn't really get schooled in the Vedanta, in the Agamas, in the Tantras, in the Yogas. He didn't, especially didn't get any schooling in Christianity or Islam. 
How is it that he was an expert in those things? <laughs> you see, so a guru should have that level of aptitude. You should be able to put a scripture in front of the guru and the guru should be able to see right through it because they know the source of that scripture. They are living at that source. It's almost as if they spoke those words. <laughs> so when a guru reads scripture, the guru is reading her own words. So of course she knows it. She's the one that said them, right? So she's able to tell you what she means by those words. No, no, no. You got it all wrong, she will say. This doesn't mean men are superior than women and men should make decisions on behalf of women. The Prophet Muhammad was certainly talking about the left and right side hemispheres of the brain. He was talking about the male conscious principle and the female subconscious emotive principle. And he was talking about rigor and discipline as the beginnings of spiritual life. That's what he, you know, you see what I mean? A guru should be able to kind of deal with these entanglements that if not properly understood, become the caste system, become the patriarchy, you see? <laughs> so a guru is living scripture. A guru teaches scripture. Look at Nisargadatta Maharaj. Look at Krishna speaking to Arjuna. Look at the Christ who said, I come not to break the law, but to uphold it. Yet you found him working on Saturdays, did you not? How could he come to uphold the law if he broke it? Literally, he would heal people on Saturdays, on the Shabbat. Clearly, what he meant by that statement in Matthew was not, I have come to be the good boy, according to the Pharisees. I have come to teach you what the Pharisees actually are trying to teach you, but they themselves don't know. <laughs> I've come to teach you the truth. Uh, and in that way, what I'm saying is not new. It's nothing new. It's been said before. It's just no one was listening the first time. So I have to say it again. <laughs> So that's the first thing. The guru is living scripture. Hmm? Sad agama. Um, and that's the first function the guru plays in your life. This is important though. This means a guru shouldn't contradict scripture. So you can always say, okay, is the guru and the guru should be able to draw from scripture. You know, that's very important. Second, this is perhaps more important. And, and I've kind of put this as a hierarchy. So the second one is it conveys initiation, often through choice. So remember in Tantra, there are two schools of Tantra. There's the Dakshina Marg and the Vama Marg. Dakshina Marg, you know, is the more orthodox dualistic Tantra. For them, it's, uh, they're not really too concerned with this initiatory role. They're more interested in the guru simply as a teacher or a preceptor, an acharya. But in the Vama Marga, which is, you know, the Tantra that we've been talking about, Kaula lineage tantra, you know, uh, left, not sorry, not left hand path tantra, but krama trika, you know, that kind of tantra, more emphasis is placed on the initiatory role of a guru. So, as you said, Anthony, diksha guru. Now, the diksha guru is your siksha guru. In, in tantra, that guru performs that role for you, uh, it performs all the roles, and that guru gives you your initiation either through a formal ceremony. Often in tantra, it was a formal ceremony. And there was often two, two major ceremonies. One was the Samaya Diksha, in which you'd be initiated into the Kula or spiritual family. And the second was the Nirvana Diksha, in which you'd be initiated into like full adeptship or something like that. Um, and it took on a very ceremonial flavor. Remember, tantrics are obsessed with ceremony. So in the... Uh, uh, ceremonial traditions of Tantra, we bring you into a canopied room and you're blindfolded and then the blindfold comes off and uh, actually while you're blindfolded, you throw a flower and the flower might land on one elaborate mandala or yantra that we would have constructed on the floor. Whichever mantra, yantra, sorry, that flower landed would be your deity. You know, there would be various deities in the room and, you know, 
the sorting hat will put you in Gryffindor or something like that. And then the, then the uh, blindfold is taken off and you are stunned by the setting. The carpets, the flags, the skulls on stars, the the imagery in the room. You know, in Hinduism, we say more is more. More light, more color, more smell, more deities, more sound. All of that barrages your senses. It's a profoundly like moment um, where you're stunned out of your preconceived notions about who you are and what the world is. Then the guru chants mantras. The guru sits you down. He, she, they sit down and they visualize their etheric body coming out through the head, entering into yours, opening up every womb in which you are to be born so that you can live out all your births at once. It can be very elaborate like that. They overwrite karmas, you know, speeding some up, negating what can be negated. You see, the guru does all of that um, in a ceremonial context. And that's one way a guru initiates you. Uh, More commonly, though, the guru does it through a glance. Just giving you a glance, looking at you a certain way. Just, you know, just with the eyes. Or or maybe bashing you in the back of the head, you know, as we hear in some Zen stories. Uh, So that's some initiation can be as simple as that and as elaborate as a full ceremony. So the guru gives you that initiation. And usually during the initiation, the guru gives you a mantra. So as you know, the transcendental meditation community, before it became this, you know, very corporate America thing, a while ago, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the 60s, peace and blessings be upon him, the yogi who brought that system over was himself a tantric adept. Yes, truly, Anthony, I have. And uh, one can sing praises to the guru forever. So, um, where are we? <laughs> Wait, um, what did I just, sorry, where were we? Oh, uh, the, the, <laughs> yes, thank you, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He came in the 60s and he brought this exact system, you know, this, no, uh... <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. I was just recalling this exact, this exact thing, which is mantra yoga. And remember, he's a tantric adept. So he was a Shaiva tantrika who came over, <laughs> who came over um, to teach this to the West. Now, he would often potentize mantras and give it to the student. Now, if you want to know some of the thinking that goes behind that, like what the guru is doing when the guru potentizes mantra, you can go and, you know, there's that lecture, uh, which is all recorded, the science of mantras which we did a couple of weeks ago. So you can listen to that again. And that will show you, you know, the elemental significance to each syllable, like the Akashic element, na, ma, ya, shi. So om, namah, shivaya is very Akashic, very ether. So you give it to someone who perhaps has an etheric element to them. You might give like some fiery ones to a fiery or maybe even a watery person to balance them. Okay, so you have this kind of consideration. So in this function, the guru gives transmission and also the mantra, often whispered in your ear. Now, there's a myth that when you die in Banaras, which is where every yogi wants to die, you know, it's the holy city. When you die in Banaras, on the funeral pyre, Shiva himself will come and whisper in your ear a liberating mantra. Shiva himself plays that role for you in Banaras. And Ramakrishna saw that. You know, Ramakrishna, peace and blessings be upon him, went to Banaras and actually saw that happening. Shiva walking around whispering mantras. So that's one thing. Now, the third thing, and this is perhaps more important 
more important than teaching you scripture, more important than giving you mantras or initiating you into spiritual life. The guru broadcasts reality, as Firstin puts it. The guru simply emanates a spiritual presence by virtue of being an embodied uh, what we might call a jivan mukta, a liberated while still in, in the body being, the very simple nature of the guru, the guru's presence in the room awakens something in you. It quickens your spiritual life. You know. Now, if you want to know about this kind of effect, one doesn't have to go very far. One can read Ram Das, who you know, has probably done a lot more than many teachers to kind of popularize guru yoga here in the West and clarify some of the misunderstandings around the guru. The guru is not a cult leader. The guru is not necessarily a charismatic person who is versed in all this. Guru is someone who is able to, while they are in your presence, awaken in you some quickening of the spiritual uh, life. And Maharaji or Neem Karoli Baba was just such a person for Ramdas. Ramdas would describe when seated next to, to Maharaji, he would feel this overwhelming love. And Maharaji would sometimes just talk about mundane stuff, just gossiping about the weather and about families. Every now and then he would throw food, you know, and that was his, what we might call Guru Kripa, which is grace throwing food at you. And Maharaji tells a nice story, which I think speaks very nicely to like the health fad here in California. Yogis laugh at it because a lot of Shaivas sneer at the body, you know, having mastered it, of course. You know, we're not escapist. We're not sneering at the body because it's stronger than us. We're sneering at the body because we're stronger than it. You know, so after a lot of yoga, we're like, eh, it's a dream. Not impressive. Brilliant machine, well done, but, you know. (laughs) So, um, there's a nice story about that, where in Maharaji's ashram, he throws puris and uh, gives you alu, you know, the, the potato, the spicy potato. Basically, as Ramdas says in his autobiography, fat, carbs, and sugar. When you're with Maharaji, all you eat is fat, carbs, and sugar. It's a very unhealthy diet. Yet, because it's prasad, because it's metaphysical food, it's actually incredibly healthy. People who aren't able to eat that stuff can eat Maharaji's prasad and they'll feel fine. When Ram Das came down with hep A, Maharaji just splashed some water. I mean, he went to Rameshwaram and he got splashed by water and he was cured. Uh, you know, so be careful, you know, don't, don't believe any of this and then go out and just throw away all your medication or whatever, everything in time, you know. Um, but uh, you see, food like that doesn't matter what you get from the guru. If it's even the saltiest of foods and you have hypertension, that food is prasad. It's metaphysical food. The guru gives food. The guru simply by cobbling your shoes, talking to you. um, That's what the guru does. Now, final thing is the guru, as we said earlier, is an example of the fullness of life. The guru should show you what it is to be unattached. Truly, the guru's life should be an example in non-attachment. You know, the guru moves through the world like a wind, fragrant, joyful, in the world, but not of it. As Maharaji says, saints and birds are very similar. They don't collect. (laughs) The guru is free of lust. The guru is free of greed. And when you follow them around, you see that. Ramakrishna actually used to jump up away from gold. If his body touched coins, he would actually physically recoil. Isn't that interesting? And one day, Swami Vivekananda wanted to test him just to see if he was being like, showing off or something. So he put a coin under the bed. He knew Ramakrishna couldn't see it. And when Ramakrishna slept on the bed, he jumped out like, Yow! you know, you can imagine like a Looney Tune scene. You know, he just like jumped out of bed like, ah, he wouldn't touch the stuff, but he was taken care of, you know, 
Think ye the birds care what they eat and where they sleep and what they will wear for raiment? The birds do not sow, nor do they reap, yet the Lord looks after them. Are you not better than these birds? Says the Christ himself. So like that, you see what it's like to be a saint, you know? Someone who just moves through the life so gracefully, effortlessly. They're always protected by somebody. You know, like Mathur Baba used to, to protect Maha, uh, Ramakrishna. And they're always financially taken care of some way or other. So uh, you see that in the Guru. When Ramakrishna... Once in his earlier days, uh, they suspected he was crazy. His whole life, they suspected he was crazy because he was, right? Holy madness. He was so sane that the rest of us crazy saw him as crazy. <laughs> but uh, um, they decided to cure his malady with the good old sexual release method. So they thought if he could just, you know, break his celibacy, then maybe it would relieve some of the tension in his body and he wouldn't be so kooky spiritual all the time. So what they did was his, you know, his caretakers sent three um, escorts to his room to like seduce him and like help him relieve the tension or whatever. Immediately upon seeing these three women, Ramakrishna fell into a swoon and he said, divine mother, divine mother, you are here. And then he went into Samadhi. He was unable to see women except as his mother. You know, he was unable to see them with eyes of lust. And you see that in Buddhism, like to see someone through the lens of lust is to objectify them, you know, is to put them as a means to some ends. And so Guru should be free of all of that, totally free of all of that. Now, what do we make of the tantric gurus who philander and drink and have sex and all of that? Okay, topic for another day, because uh, that's some really advanced spirituality. It's definitely, if we give it to beginners, it's license for, um, you know, material bondage. And none of you here are beginners, so I want to do it. But in the interest of time, let's save it for another lecture. <laughs> Enough now to say that the guru walks the walk. The guru really walks the walk. Do not accept anything less than that for a guru, you know. The guru must walk the walk. So does that mean you can only learn from realized beings? In a way, yes. You can only learn what's worth learning from realized beings. But until you meet such a being, along the way, there are many teachers. So I wanted to close with this very nice idea, again from Ramdas, who says, um, in life, there are only three people that you encounter. Gurus, teachers, or teachings. <laughs> so some people aren't teachers to you, but they are teachings. They teach you what not to do. <laughs> And uh, here, of course, Ramdas is referencing our delineation of an Uppa Guru and a Sadguru. So in response to your question, Anthony, the distinction that we care about most is Uppa and Sat. Other distinctions are a little bit blurry because they perform various roles. But broadly speaking, some people are Uppa Gurus, which means Guru along the way. You meet someone who is like a spiritual peer who is just a little further up the path than you, so can perhaps stimulate you to some degree, but you can only get to where he, she, or they are. They might not be able to take you all the way. They can certainly take you some of the way. And in your life, there will be many such uppa gurus, you know, gurus who facilitate your spiritual life, but aren't yet able to take you past the gulf. The sadguru is the one who will completely liberate you through whose grace and through whose grace alone can you achieve liberation in this life. And for some of us, we're not yet even ready to articulate what liberation is. Most of us just want a better life. You know, we just want to improve our financial circumstance. We want to improve our marital status. We want to improve our health. Most of us are interested in very worldly things and that's okay. 
Remember, Tantra celebrates that. Tantra says you can have boga, worldly enjoyment, and yoga. But eventually you tire of karma, artha, dharma, and eventually you want moksha. The sadguru and the sadguru alone can grant you moksha. Other gurus can give you dharma. You know, you can read Stephen Pressfield's War of Art and it will inspire you to make art. You know, that can be a real guru for you. You can work with some great lover and they can be your guru in karma. You might find a financial mentor. You might have known Napoleon Hill and he might have been your wealth or artha guru. You see, you can have upa gurus. And as you start developing your taste for moksha or spiritual liberation, you'll have plenty of hatha yoga teachers, pranayama teachers, teachers in tantric ritual, all of that. They are all gurus along the way. But then you meet your guru. So we'll close with just maybe four or five brief stories about people meeting their gurus. The first is the story from the autobiography of a yogi. It's a very lovely story. Yogananda, you know, from a very young age, felt a calling to spiritual life. His dream was just to go to the Himalayas. So he would, you know, throw all of his belongings out of the room in a little bag and then sneak out at night. And him and his friends would try to make it to the Himalayas. And his father would try to catch him and bring him back home and all of that. Eventually, he succeeded in going to a monastery and struggling. And one day, while he was walking in the marketplace on an errand, you know, at his monastery, at his ashram, um, he happened to walk by an alleyway. And when he looked into that alleyway, a man was standing there, a very leonine man, you know, exuding the strength, confidence, grace of a siddha, of a, of a perfected one uh, with white beard and white mane of hair. And it was the eyes. And Paramahansa Yogananda, back then, he was still muk- uh, Mukunda, you know, he was stunned and it was, it felt like he couldn't move anymore. He was so enchanted, so enraptured by this being. And he knew, just knew that this was his guru. And he approached that being and that they both cried. You know, the guru was so happy to meet the shisha. The guru needs the shisha as much as the shisha needs the guru. The guru cried, Yukteswar, his name was, peace and blessings be upon him. Swami Sri Yukteswar was Paramahansa Yogananda's guru. And Yogananda waxes lyrical. Mine is a guru who would not put out my eyes of reason. Mine is a guru who encouraged free thinking. Mine was a guru who got rid of my impurities as one removes the cavities from my mouth. It was painful, but liberating, you see. And uh, he learned from that guru directly the things that he needed to learn for liberation. You've seen Star Wars? It's exactly that. Every Padawan needs a Jedi Knight and every Jedi Knight needs a Jedi Master. You know, the Sith, there can only be two. (laughs) It's exactly that. There must be a Guru and there must be a student and they're almost always together. Guru often takes several students, kind of like a Kula. It's a Guru and and one family. But each of those person relates to the Guru one-to-one. And the Guru relates to them on an individual basis. The guru just doesn't just prescribe the same thing for everyone in the kula. The guru prescribes something for you based on where you are on your path, a mantra, a practice, a teaching. So that's Swami uh, Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar. Sri Yukteswar in turn was taught by Lahiri Mahashaya and Lahiri Mahashaya, uh, even more interesting story, was taken by some kind of divine coincidence was taken to a railroad position up in the Himalayas. And there he met the guru of gurus, you know, Babaji, who is not even like a being, he's not an incarnation. He's, he's just like, 
he's a disembodied guru, you know, <laughs> he kind of appears in various times of history. He looks exactly the same all the time. Some people think it's Shiva himself. Uh, but you can read all about that guru in the autobiography of yogi. That's our first story. Second one is Ramakrishna, a story a little more dear to my heart um, uh, because that lineage is very special to me. So Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. So it's a story of Ramakrishna, um, peace and blessings be upon him, the 19th century Bengali saint. Now Ramakrishna used to go up onto the roof and shout, holy mother, holy mother, where are the strong men of India? He's something like that. Where are the boys who will come to me? I, I, I'm like a mother cub, who, mother lion who lost her cubs. You know, he would wail because he was calling for the guru. Uh, sorry, the guru was calling for the students. Eventually, just such a student came in the form of young Narendranath, a very British educated, rational minded, yet deeply spiritual uh, practitioner who was skeptical about the existence of God. He wouldn't accept on dogma the existence of God. And he, in fact, was quite critical as was the fad of the time of much of India's spiritual, like supernatural kind of beliefs. He saw that it caused for a lot of social ills. So he was looking for someone who could teach him genuine spirituality. Eventually he goes up to Ramakrishna. He sang a song, by the way, he used to be a great singer. Um, he sang this song in the hall uh, and Ramakrishna happened to be there. And after he sang, he went up to Ramakrishna and he said, people tell me you are a realized being. Uh, have you seen God without missing a beat? Ramakrishna says, yes, I see and talk to God. I see God more clearly than I see you. <laughs> I talk to God more coherently than I talk to you. Remember how we say when people tell the truth, you just know, you just feel it in their voice. Vivekananda felt it and was so taken aback by that, but he still didn't. I mean, he didn't like, he didn't like Ramakrishna in the beginning. One suspects he used to maybe feel a little disgust at Ramakrishna's sentimentality. So Ramakrishna used to just go into ecstatic trance and he would do all these things. And, and Vivekananda was so put together that he found that unseemly. He would often abuse Ramakrishna, one for his blind devotion to Kali and secondly for his outbursts, you know? And many people would say to Ramakrishna, why do you tolerate that abuse from Naren? And Ramakrishna would say, you don't know who he is, but I know. Walt Whitman, he, he is, Ramakrishna knew who Naren was, God himself, and, and, and Naren eventually came around. But you see, here you're learning something about the nature of the guru. In the beginning, you don't actually have to like them on a personal basis. So another definition of the guru is someone who you perhaps don't even like, but who you can't help seeing over and over again. You just can't stay away from them. You don't know what it is about them, but you just keep coming back for more. You know, and Ramakrishna eventually put his foot on Naren's chest and pushed it, sending Naren into Samadhi. So the Guru is able to do that. Ramakrishna would eloquently teach about scripture, though he couldn't even write his own name in English. He didn't really even read the Gita. You know, he would just pace back and forth and say, Gita, 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 Gita. And people would ask him, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading the Gita. If you just say Gita, Gita, Gita over and over, you know what word it becomes? Tiaga, 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 Tiaga. The Sanskrit gi and ta, if you flip it, it's Tiaga, uh, which means renunciation, which is, by the way, what the Gita is about. So you don't need to read the Gita. You just need to say it backwards. <laughs> that was the kind of teacher Ramakrishna was. You see at the heart of scripture and his presence brought joy to many. That's Ramakrishna. So you got the Yogananda story, the Ramakrishna story. Uh, then we'll tell you the Ramdas story. Western rational psychologist from Harvard goes to India, the story as old as time, becoming 
absolutely disgusted with Western materialism and the limits of the rational mind, goes on a journey to the East, you know, the Orientalism of that day and also today to discover some other way of looking at the world. He sees this man in a blanket who somehow knows about his mother and is able to talk to him about something that he shouldn't have known. Maharaji overrides Ram Dass's rational system breaks his heart and causes in him an opening of spirituality. From that moment on, Maharaji was completely surrendered to the Guru. That's an important element of Guru Yoga, complete surrender, complete devotion, complete adherence to the Guru. You know, Not to say it's blind faith, but it's faith that comes about after the Guru meeting several requirements, you know? So the final story, and we'll close this, this one story, Marpa and Milarepa. Milarepa was a black magician, you know, a Tibetan uh, um, uh, sorcerer of sorts. And eventually he hungered for liberation. So he went to the guru Marpa, who refused to teach him anything until he performed certain menial backbreaking tasks, such as building a stone tower. Every time Milarepa built the tower, Marpa would tear it down. And for decades, this occurred, you know, for decades, Marpa forced Milarepa to sweep the floor, to build the thing. It's like a Miyagi story, a Mr. Miyagi story, you know, and they were both becoming old men. Marpa was getting older, Milarepa was getting older, and Milarepa was close to the end of his life, and still Marpa wouldn't teach him. Finally, Marpa's wife came around and, and said, please take pity on the guy, you know, teach him. And you hear all these funny stories about Marpa's a wife interceding on behalf of Milarepa, Marpa being a stodgy hard ass and refusing to teach Milarepa, Milarepa trying to sneak in and steal teachings, you know, once Marpa's eyes were closed and Milarepa snuck into the back of this, the room and Marpa threw a stick and all these funny stories. Eventually, Marpa teaches Milarepa, but not after he had cleansed him of much of his life's bad karma. And, and the karma that Milarepa himself accrued from all of his black magic vengeance practices. You see, so Milarepa needed all of that. He needed to build the stone wall and have it been torn down. He needed to go through all that hardship because that was the only way he could cleanse himself to receive the teaching. Remember last week, we talked about the prerequisites for spirituality. Sometimes only suffering can prepare you. I can only baptize you in water. Soon one will come who will baptize you in fire. You know, John the Baptist, he spoke those words. So if you want to be baptized by fire, you must expect that your guru will subject you to pr profound suffering because often that's the only way. So remember what Krishna did to Arjuna. He challenged Arjuna's conceptions of himself in the world. He asked Arjuna to forsake his duty as a kachatriya, to forsake his duty as a brother, as a son, as a, as a student. He asked Yudhishthira, the very embodiment of virtue, to lie. Can you imagine a guru asking Yudhishthira to lie? Krishna himself says, Yudhishthira, to win this war, you must go to Drona and tell him Ashwataman is dead. And by the way, Yudhishthira didn't really lie. Bhishma killed an elephant named Ashwataman. It's kind of like a like a haha loophole. So when Yudhishthira, the lawgiver, says Ashwataman is dead, he's technically not lying, but of course his intent is to deceive. Can you imagine Krishna asking Yudhishthira to do something straight up immoral? If you met your guru today and you were a raw foods vegan, you bet you that guru is going to ask you to eat a Big Mac. You know, 
The guru's role in your life is to challenge who you think you are. The guru is meant to break through the cultural sediment that you have hereby accrued through lifetimes. And not just that, your spiritual sediment to all the concepts you have about spiritual life. That must be torn asunder in the light of the guru's grace. So make no mistake, guru yoga is supremely uncomfortable, you know, for the ego. Uh, but it's the best kind of yoga there is because guru yoga is bhakti yoga. It's the yoga of grace. So let's close here and come and sit in our meditation posture as we do the guru prayer, praying for the guru to intercede on our behalf. We bow now and offer a thousand pranams and salutations to all those teachers that have come before and all those who will come after us in the lineage. We honor now our own place in this lineage, an unbroken line of cultural, spiritual, psychic transmission stretching back to time immemorial. We honor Lord Shiva, Adi Shankara, Adi Yogi, Shiva, who was the first yogi, who was the first teacher, the teacher of all teachers. We honor Shiva, who comes in the form of our teacher, recognizing that each teacher is but one teacher, the only teacher there is, God or Brahman or Source. We recognize that it is Source teaching Source, that it is the Guru awakening the Guru, by the grace of the Guru. We ask now that the Guru be present in our lives in a very real way. We ask that we be worthy of the Guru's grace, that we shall meet in this life and the next and every life to come that selfsame Guru whom we have known in lives before. We take refuge now at the lotus feet of the Guru. We beg for forgiveness for past transgressions. We ask for the embrace and grace of the Divine One. May it be so. Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Deva Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma, Tasme Sigave Namaha. Shanti, 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 Hari Om Tat Sat, Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu. Om Peace, Peace, Peace. Thank you, one and all. Thank you. Namaste, Namaskaram. So good to see you all. As always, feel free to stick around for a little bit as long as you like. We'll do questions and answers for a little bit. All right. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Nish. Good to see you. I don't have any questions, but I really wish I had come sooner. (laughs) 
I've missed you so much, Kathleen. By the way, everyone, this is Kathleen. Kathleen is a Reiki master. And it's truly a joy to finally reconnect with you, Kathleen. A Reiki yes. master and a judge. You dished it herself. Yeah, I've been I've been working too much. <laughs> Hard to keep that balance between the two. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> but I still use that the Reiki on the bench, so. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, if ever I should end up in court, I want it to be in your court, Kathleen. <laughs> I know you do family law. Exactly, and I think I'd had a, I would have a conflict of interest. I'd have to recuse myself. <laughs> <laughs> Judge not, lest he be judged. But Kathleen <laughs> is the exception to that. <laughs> I, I don't judge. I just try to get people to go the right on the right path. You know, <laughs> guide them. I love that. Kathleen says, "I do not judge. I guide." Mm -hmm. I love it. <laughs> hammers the gavel <laughs> exactly <laughs> thank you for coming Kathleen all right thank you I'm gonna go but it was nice meeting you all take care good night dear one good night yes. all right before I take Saint Anthony clarification of Claire's question I missed the fourth function of the guru after broadcasting reality so the ones that we presented today one was living scripture two was conveying initiation slash spiritual transmission slash empowering mantras. Three, broadcasting reality. And four, as an example of the full possibilities of life. You know, So as you can tell, they're all one function, but with four nuances. You know, The first has to do with scripture. The second has to do with a specific act, like an initiation. The third has to do with simply that guru's being and being in that guru's presence. And the fourth has to do with your intellectualizing of that experience. You know, so sometimes when you're with the guru, you don't even remember who you are. But when you go home, then you can kind of write in your diary or reflect, wow, I really met someone who's walking the walk. Um, and we say there are too many unhappy people teaching unhappy people how to be happy. You might go home like, I actually just met a happy person. And then that, that's the fourth function. Yes. Beautiful. Claire. All right. St. Anthony, please. Would you be comfortable sharing your own story of your encounter with your Diksha guru, your initiation guru? Of course. Um, I, I really appreciated your stories earlier of Paramahansa Yogananda and Vivekananda and so on. But uh, I was just wondering, um, uh, what was your own personal experience? Yes. Beautiful question, Anthony. Beautiful question. See, I try to leave this, this one out of the lectures as far as possible. So I stay as far away from anecdotes as possible, lest you be drawn into the idiosyncrasies of this one. <laughs> we are at our best when we're most out of our own way, yes. And it's okay after you've given that disclaimer, yes. then you can tell us anything. Yes, correct, correct. Having said that disclaimer, pause, like pause the transmission moment, and then we'll step into that hat. Uh, there was in my life a profound initiation from my grandfather. Now, he had been my acharya throughout my whole life. So as I was a child, it was my grandfather who taught me the scripture. You know, so he sat me down and, and he was a uh, Shaiva Bhakta, a devotee of the um, most heartfelt 
predisposition. You know, his his joy in life was to stay up all night singing songs to Shiva. And he was the temple singer in our local temple, the Ramalingeswaran temple. So there he was singing the songs in the temple. And as a young boy, he would bring me and, and just put me there and he would sing the songs. And eventually he had me come and sing the songs too. In the afternoons, he would sit me in front of Shiva and teach me the, the great Tamil epics from Manika Vasahar, like the Shiva Puranam and all that. So in those moments, there was a subtle initiation going on. You know, there was in his ashram, it's, he built a kind of annex to our house. Next door, there was his own house. And in it, he only cooked, uh, you know, sattvic food, only vegetarian foods were cooked there. In our main house, some meats were cooked, but in his ashram, only vegetarian foods. It was a place of spiritual learning and the occasional Bollywood drama, you know. But there I was in that ashram nightly learning this stuff. And there was always that feeling of being initiated into these scriptures. But, uh, and very often he would do that thing where he would place the hand on my forehead and, you know, transmit a little bit of Shakti. And it was always very gradual. However, uh, when I moved to America about five years ago, while I was in America in 2020, March of 2020, I, I was in America and the one night in the dream, I was standing by the banks of perhaps the Ganga, a big river, a broad river. And across the river, my grandfather was standing inside an alcove. You know, and, and it was a very small kind of portico and he was standing in there and there was a Nataraja or some sort of Shiva. It was a kind of moving Shiva. It was a Nataraja and a Shiva Lingam all at once. Um, and there was a single lamp, you know, those tall lamps. There was a single lamp lighting the darkened room and he was standing inside of it, um, seated, I actually seated, I believe. And he was speaking to me from across the river. He called me over for a little bit and then proceeded to initiate me across the river. And in that initiation, there was tremendous feeling, a sense of Shakti. And when I woke up in the morning, it was to the news that he had just passed. You know, he passed just on his birthday, like he's a Pisces. So approaching March, he had done his Maha Samadhi. He knew it was happening. He kind of asked everyone to leave the room. There was the Shiva mantras and he just, you know, he, he exited. Uh, and, and that morning when I discovered that he had passed away, I, I realized that he must have done something. Since then, um, all of my plans for life have been derailed. I was on my way to becoming a rock and roll guitar player here in Hollywood. Uh, that's totally out of the picture now. Um, I don't, there's nothing that Nish can do anymore. Since from that day forth, there was a tremendous urge, not just to deepen my own sadhana, but to teach, you know. And uh, the, what I teach is, is his teaching always. All you ever feel is his presence coming through. And he himself received, uh, he, of the lineage of Vivekananda and Ramakrishna Paramahansa, you know, through many, the Shaiva branches, it goes all the way back to Sri Lanka and from Sri Lanka to Tamil Nadu. You know, so we come from Sidambaram, the south part of India and the birthplace of, of Southern Tantra. We come from the Adi Shankaras, you know, the non-dualist of the South, uh, what we might call the Sri Vidya tradition, which later moved to Sri Lanka and then came to Malaysia when the British colonies were moving people over. So that was the perhaps idiosyncratic experience of this one's uh, Diksha. Thank you very much for sharing that. Yes. Um, I have had a Siksha guru in the sense of 
uh, what you might call an upaguru in this life who taught me a great deal about arhatic yoga and um, pranic healing. Um, but I was very clear, having read some of the same stories about meetings of uh, people like Paramahansa Yogananda with Sri Yukteswar, that my encounter with my teacher, Master Choa, was not at that same level. So in this incarnation, I do not feel that I've had that experience. Um, but I definitely recognize the quality of energy that shines through someone who has actually had that experience. And I find that really magnetic. You know, they say the man of God is a flower whose fragrance cannot be denied. You know, isn't that interesting? Like the person who is in love, the, the that's just the phrase, the man, the woman, the person of God, someone who, what it is, is love. You know, the, the word enthusiasm, enthusiasm, right? To be, to be filled with God, that enthusiasm, you're right, Anthony, we come together and we, we're so attracted to one another on the basis of that love for God. And so it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, Anthony? It is, absolutely. It's the best thing in the world. <sighs> I would go so far to say the same, the best thing in the world. Thank you very much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking, dear St. Anthony. <laughs> and uh, in, your, in the instance of your Uppa Guru, did you receive a transmission? I mean, certainly, right? You get initiated to pranic healing. Yeah, multiple transmissions regarding the healing work and then also a few transmissions in Arhatic Yoga, which was his own personal synthesis of different aspects of yoga. Um, and so that, is that has become my main practice for the last 21 years. And uh, I, I continue to, to honor that practice and that tradition. Uh, he left his body in 2007, uh, but he has stayed with me. Um, so I still receive teachings from him outside of his bodily transmission of, of the knowledge. Um, but I still have that longing to have the ultimate encounter with the Satguru. And uh, I have to confess to being a little bit jealous of one or two of the other students of Master Choa who told me with absolute conviction that they knew for a fact that he was their Satguru. He was their param guru that they remembered from past lives. And I thought, wow, that must be amazing. That's not, like good for you. <laughs> no, there's a story. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I just knew that that was not the case for me, but I, I was open to learning whatever I could from him during the seven years that we spent together. So. There's that story in the Yogananda tells of somebody who, an Englishman who had a vision of an Indian guru. And when Vivekananda was speaking at London, he ran up to meet Vivekananda on his way into the lecture hall, took him by the arm and said, you're my guru. Vivekananda took one look at him and laughed. And he said, no, 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 no. The next Indian man who will come is your guru, not me. <laughs> and it was Yogananda. <laughs> the vision was, you know, he's like, oh, brown guy. Okay, okay. No, it was the next one. It was Yogananda. So there are those stories. That's a great example of premature diksha. Yeah. Ramdas, Mukundan, uh, Muk uh, Muktananda used to ask Ramdas to 
kind of join up, join the dark side. You know, I say, like, I'm your real guru. Muktananda would say to Ram Das. Uh, and, <laughs> and Ram Das knew his guru was Maharaji. So he always knew his guru was Maharaji and not Muktananda. But it's yeah. funny that Muktananda was a guru to many and not to all, even though maybe he wanted to be. <laughs> so right. also know there's like a power play there, which is interesting. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much, Nish. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much. Man, all these tantrics, we really humiliate ourselves with all these power plays. We need to stop it once. <laughs> so, us Shaivas, you know, what? because what? <laughs> we're tantrics, we're all about external forms of energy. And, and so Shaivas have this reputation for being like power, 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 Siddhi, 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 Mulabhand, you know, redirect the semen upward the spine, or, you know. We have to chill the fuck out. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Anthony. Kaden, please. Hey, Nish. I just, well, first, I guess I'll say um, thank you for sharing. And yeah, thank you for everything today. It was pretty great. Also, I have to say, if you. You said something about like, oh, we're just all spending time with people who love God. If you said that like six months ago, I would have left. <laughs> okay, no, it's okay. Um, I do have to say that though, but everyone here is cool. So <laughs> we, know, we know what you mean. We know what <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. <laughs> no, but yeah. No, I just want to say thank you though. And I actually did have a question. Um, some, I must say issues, I'm sure that's the wrong word. I'll say some issues that have kind of come up um, as, I'm gonna, sound weird, as Caden's life has gone by, some issues have come up. And I feel like, I mean, even though like not talking about anything spiritual to do with meditation, the fact that it just like, it's relieved a lot of anxiety and other stuff that I had going for me stuff that still like you know causes problems in Caden's life still happens and i feel like sometimes it's like escapism or like mm -hmm. i'm like i'm not i'm just like ignoring my problems when i go meditate and whatnot how do you i don't know if there's like a way to avoid that besides like running up into a mountain <laughs> and not having any problems in the first place i know it's kind of like oh just don't have problems and then you can start i don't know but is there anything that, I mean, I know a lot of the stuff that's in these books doesn't really talk about housekeeper type things that have to deal with actual like lives. <laughs> I mean, obviously I don't, I mean that in the best way. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, no, it's yeah. true. You're right to point out that a lot of this literature is renunciant literature. It's uh, what do they call it? Haskiasm. Hasikiasm, right? I forget how to pronounce that, but like the tradition of going off by yourself into the desert to find God and leaving the world behind. Like certainly you're right, Kaden. The text on meditation, like um, the Yoga Sutra was for renunciants and, and sadhus, right? Um, hatha Yoga and Tantra from a house. Tantra is, by the way, a householder path. Tantra is supposed to be for people in the world, but towards the end of the tantric period or what we might call the classical tantric period, you start to see the Shiva Samhita, you know, these 11th and sorry, 12th century texts and 13th century texts, which again are back to being uh, uh, sannyasin texts. So it's a great question. It's a matter of methodology, like who these texts are addressed to. Um, and that, therefore the best text 
for the householder tends to be texts like the Bhagavad Gita, which talks about work in the world and makes a case against going to the Himalayas. The idea that if one is to retreat from the world because of defeat or wanting to be, you know, kind of like uh, have an easier time of it, the world will follow you because the world is not in the world. It's in the head. That's Yeah, that's kind of what, yeah, it feels like if you're just like running away from your problems, eventually they catch up. Yes, they will follow you to the cave. That's for sure. As Krishna points out, um, if, you know, they say a lot of people want monastic life because they think it's going to be easier. You know, wife is causing problems at home, nagging, you know, work is hard. A lot of tasks I don't want to do. It's boring. I have to make money. So many concerns. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just, I don't know, idle away in a monastery, teach some people some Sanskrit grammar every now and then, uh, get an allowance. And then you come to the monastery and you realize, wow, if you thought family life was hard, wait till you spend time with a bunch of 60 horny celibates who are all working on themselves. And there's a lot of like politics within the monastery. Wait till you have to trim the hedges and do the monastery paperwork. We have to manage the email list and build a website for them. Like it's all such a hassle. And if you thought working in the world was hard, wait till you do sadhu work, you know, the work of begging and the work of... uh, holding alternate nostrils in the Ganga and dealing with the matted locks and clean the monastery bathroom. Yeah, it's all, it's all work anyway. So Krishna's argument is it's all karma. It's all karma. Whether you're doing meditation, whether you're uh, praying, whether you're at the soup kitchen or whether you're at the office, it's all karma. Whatever it is, it's work. And there's no way to escape work, as you've rightly pointed out. There's no escape for anybody. A sadhu has work as much as a king has work. Everyone has work. So the real question is, how do we do that? How do we do that work? And it's important to remember, Ken, as you clarified, meditation is bringing uh, a profound, you know, deepening that has effects in your life, right? Like you feel calmer, stress has gone down, and generally you find yourself more effective in life. Yes? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're able to focus and by virtue of that, do tasks more efficiently, all of that. And, and Maharishi, yeah. No, I was just going to say, it's not like I'm like, that's the reason why I'm doing it continuously. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of like a a wonderful side effect, if you will. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was teaching meditation for those ends. So he said, Hey, you want to be better at work? I'll teach you meditation. You want to have a better sex life? I'll teach you meditation. So a lot of these early American meditators were doing it as like a health thing as like a mental health thing. And Maharishi Mahesh used to be criticized back in India. His brother monks would say, "Uh, Maharaj, why are you teaching these people? such profane forms of meditation meditation is for liberation not for better sex life you know you're profaning the arts and Maharishi said to them brothers I give the Americans what they want so one day they might come to want what I want to give them liberation so in a way spiritual life the the tantric formula is very awesome it says boga and yoga you don't need to wait until you're done with boga in order to practice yoga if you practice yoga while pursuing your boga here's what you'll notice if you want better sex you'll get it if you want a healthy beautiful body you'll get it if you want more money you'll get it you'll learn the secrets of wealth um, and, and, you know, when you're healthier, when you're calmer, you're going to exude a kind of charisma and magnetism. You'll nail every job interview. People will want to do business with you. You can't run away from money. It'll come. Money will come. Uh, and then with that money, you can enjoy maybe more luxuries in life. 
that speeds up your process. It quickens your karma. And then you can finish with all of that. I mean, there's a risk. You might continue to get ensnared. But uh, for a practitioner like you, the benefits won't deter you, you know, because you know why you're practicing. So when the benefits come, you can enjoy it. The first point is meditation will help dealing with all the stuff that comes up in life. So if you intensify your sadhana, if you intensify yoga, meditation, your Reiki hand positions every day, all of that will be seen in your daily life. But the second thing to consider is meditation as a methodology for liberation. So the reason we meditate is to clarify or pacify the mind in order to have a more lucid intellect. Remember, we distinguish buddhi from manas. Manas is just the mind. It's just the moving thoughts. Buddhi is the intellect. Most people aren't able to feel into the vibration of a teaching. In other words, most people aren't able to have insight or gnosis because the mind is too busy. So even when we impart a teaching like the highest teachings of Advaita Vedanta, or we just did a Kashema Rajas Pratnya Bigna Hridayam, when that teaching comes, the mind is too busy to understand it. Or if even if there's some level of understanding, it's not yet cl clear, right? So meditation clarifies the intellect. Um, but there are two ways you can do it. The yogi is interested in pacifying the mind completely. And the Advaitin or the Tantric doesn't need to do that. And let me give a metaphor here. Let's say you wanted to know what water was. Your desire was to know water. And your desire is to know spirit, awareness, truth, right? So when you go to a lake in the daytime, notice that if someone were to say, there, that's water, and you look to where the person was pointing, you might see the reflection of a goose. And you say, the goose is water? And they're like, no, the goose is not water water, it's over there. And then you look over and you see the reflection of a tree and you say, the leaves are water. And they say, no, a leaf is not water. You know, what you're seeing is superimposition upon the truth. You're seeing forms, you're seeing maya, but the maya is made in the truth. Now, what the yogi does is come back to the lake at night. Do you see? By meditating, the yogi ends all the reflections on the lake and thereby gains a direct perception of the lake. The Advaitin says, no need to cancel the reflections. You can work even with the reflections to reason it out. You know, so this is a kind of open eyes meditation. So Kaden, you have your, you know, Kaden has his meditation practice in the morning. Uh, and that, of course, that's the yogi thing, Kaden the yogi, you know. But then when Kaden enters the world, Kaden needs to put on the jnana hat, the advaita hat, and do the open-eyed meditation, which is anytime something comes up in your life, you're like, to whom is this applying, you know? To whom is this occurring? To whom is this bothering? Like the self-inquiry thing, you see? Yeah, I will. I was kind of. Could you go more into like, because I feel like whenever I've asked like who's being affected, I mean, it just seems like Caden keeps piling things on that he needs to deal with, which obviously like maybe a Caden issue. But I feel like if I just you know like if I keep being like, oh, I'm not, like oh, I'm not affected by this stuff. I can't. Um, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I don't know if you know what I mean. So when you say I'm, piling I'm things like up, a, I'm like, I feel like I'm creating a separation, like separation between like, but I don't, I don't know if it's like, I maybe I'm just, I mean, I'm still fairly new to everything relatively to how long I've lived on this earth, <laughs> new to this. So, I mean, I don't know if I'm feeling like it's actually like a separation where I'm like, 
um i'm thinking it's like two different people type thing because that's kind of yes, what yes. i feel like when it's like okay i'm gonna go meditate and caden's just gonna i'm just gonna watch caden think okay no you're asking first of all you've been doing this a very long time <laughs> but second of all this question is so good for people to know such a good question which is if we do this kind of nethy nethy not this not that aren't we just creating like a split personality syndrome where there's kate in the body kate in the mind who is just as fucked up as ever and then there is the witness who is somehow separate and not involved in that and there's no improvement on the level of kate's body and mind um and we say in our culture uh, who wants a grumpy gyani now, the idea is that the spirituality should be integrated and manifested in the mind and the body too. So a jnani should reflect those qualities. So you're asking a brilliant question. What to do about that sense of distance or separation, um, detachment that seems to not address the genuine and real problems and, and issues in, in one's life, right? Yeah. So great question, great question. And the process works like this. So you said earlier, Kaden, that the Kaden experience has recently been piling things up for itself, right? To deal with. More have you noticed, more or less? Yeah. Have you noticed the, those things? Why do they pile up? Do they pile up because of certain words, actions, or thoughts on your part? Yeah. Well, finish what you're going to say, and I think I can connect the dots. <laughs> yeah, because there seems to be some authorship. Like when there are problems in our life, let's say let's say there's illness in the body, right? Let's say the body is in unf- infirm or whatever. Often it's because there are certain patterns of behavior like sleeping really late or or drinking coffee all the time or I don't know, eating certain foods or some kind of pattern of behavior that perpetuates perhaps an illness pattern in the body. Now, let's say there's a pattern of thinking that creates a contraction experience around what someone says or does. So maybe we have pet peeves. Maybe our partner says something like, wow, you know, you always, you know, you know, when people start the sentence with you always, or you never, you know, it's going to cause a fight. Like you always do this, or you never understand when I, you know, and, and when people say stuff like that, Maybe there's a contraction pattern and we say something back and we damage the relationship. Or maybe there's something we need to do that we put off doing uh, and then it piles up and then we feel overwhelmed or stressed. There's always, I think, humbly, some level of unskilled effort involved when things pile up. You can see how there's a way we could have acted differently, right? To prevent those things from piling up. Now, ideally, this practice is supposed to give you the space to make new choices. So for instance, when someone says something to us that we don't like, that causes contraction, if we feel anger, if in that moment we can remember that we are Brahman, then we create the necessary space around that pattern in order not to react, to be more active participants in our life, as opposed to unconscious reactors to the patterns in our subconscious. That's how the practice works to clarify the body and the mind. So when you feel an addiction, like, oh, I want to do this substance or something, suddenly you pause and you think, huh, who wants to do the substance? Is it my body? Is it my mind? I'm Brahman after all. Why would I be reaching out for it? And then when you do that, when you kind of negate away those patterns, it creates space and that space allows you to act rather than react. And that's how the body and mind comes to reflect greater health and greater peace. Then the things don't pile up anymore. Okay. Yeah. So I, sh- okay. I guess a follow. I'm sorry. I guess a follow up would be like, don't, don't be like over, uh, like just give it time. 
if it feels like that's happening, like I'm like I'm just escaping from whatever my problems are through meditation, I guess. Yeah, and just time like, and I mean, I mean, I mean, like if it's like how do I phrase this? <laughs> um, uh, should I, should it be I? It's is it something that I need to be concerned about that maybe I'm doing something in my practice wrong, or would mm-hmm. you say that's more of a thing that it just Kaden needs to figure out and then the, everything else? If I just continue with what I'm doing, then it'll straighten itself out. If does is that how with, I should, with you yeah. with you I tend to feel a little like not worried at all because the the thing to remember is that your ideal is very strong you know what you're practicing for and second you're on the lookout for escapism like you're aware that there could be a tendency to negate away the problems or neti neti away from dealing with life and living your life as long as you're aware of that that's your insurance that will protect you you know as you stay aware of that tendency you'll know to watch out for it so you'll know when honestly that's what you're doing you know if you're just kind of escaping now one thing to note Kaden, is that the practice is not for really not really for the quiet moments of life uh, when the problem it's, it's, you know, like when the problems are in the distance or when you're thinking the practice is there for when the problems are coming up themselves. Okay. You yeah. see? So that's when you have to do the neti neti, because often those are the moments we have to be the most conscious. We notice that there's a lot of fallout in our lives because things happen and then we fall into an unconscious pattern and then we perpetuate suffering for ourselves and others. You know? Okay. So when those things arise in your life, and you notice a pattern coming up, that's when you neti neti yourself into a place of better uh, action. Okay. I think maybe I'm also just attributing some, uh, just some of the acknowledgement of my own feelings and stuff as like separation from what, okay. Yes. Another Uh, thing to remember. I I come at you with just brainstormed ideas and hopefully (laughs) they get sorted out by the end of this. No, I love the thought clouds. You know, let, let us submerge ourselves in this wonderful uh, universe of yeah. thoughts. It's incredible and very beautiful, Kaden. Thank you. No, one other thing to note here, and this, this has happened to me a lot in this boy's own journey, is renunciation and concepts about renunciation are two different things. Sometimes you don't have to let go of a pattern of behavior. You only need to let go of your thoughts about it. You see? So... A tantra guru once told me not to be so attached to non-attachment, which is, of course, a difficult teaching because it can be interpreted as go back into the world, go and taste all the stuff, go and live, you know, but which, which is a recipe for getting caught again, you know, and in my value system, I was like, I'm not going to take a license to debauchery, you know, how dare you say such a thing to a Shaiva world renouncer, you know? Um, But then I finally understood her teaching. This great tantric master was telling me, Nish, you don't have to renounce renunciation in practice. You can continue living a life free of lust and greed and don't need to feel like you don't need to own any money. Like you can live that, but renounce your ideas about that kind of life. And I could see what she was saying because there was a moment of contraction when I was up here about it and not living it. So while I was living it, I was also thinking it but I didn't need to be thinking it. You know, the body was living it. So maybe it's the case that Caden is totally on the path, doing absolutely the right thing. The pileup that's happening is just karmic. You know, it's coming up and the thinking around it might be the thing to drop. 
Okay, I think that may be something. Yeah, thank you a lot for that. Of yeah. course. Maybe a few more practical. Lauren, I'll come right at you. A few more <laughs> practical. Yeah, I saw it. And Caden was just talking. It's like Caden's talking, the little hand pops up. <laughs> You're talking, but meanwhile, I'm like, hi. <laughs> yeah. Just like a little, like, I don't want to interrupt, but. <laughs> 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 Where's Waldo? <laughs> Maybe a few practical suggestions, Kaden, is remember the foot rubbing thing is really great. Like get the brummy oil and just massage the feet and calves and thighs every day. A big thing is sensation in the lower body. If you can continue, like pick up all 10 toes, spread them and place them back down, like starting from the pinky toe, place them back down one at a time as far as possible. Just keep picking up and spreading the toes. As you do that, you'll be bringing energy down to the body and out of this whole thing. And then you might find a more like kind of natural and spontaneous movement because often it's the thought patterns that are restricting um, the harmony of life. The Qigong practitioners are all about this, right? Like they do their Qigong or Tai Chi and they're all about Wu Wei, effortless effort. And learning Qigong can be infuriating because there's not a lot for the mind. They're just like, relax. You know, that's how they teach you because the idea is to get out of your head and allow your body to be swept up into the process of life living itself. So you don't need to fix anything. You know, there's no need to like solve for the pile up um, those, those things don't have to be problems. They don't have to be seen as difficulties or obstacles or hurdles. They can be seen as waves to ride skillfully and beautifully. They can be seen as the brown notes or the blues notes that make up that Miles Davis record. You know, Bitches Brew with the 26 John, uh, 26 minute John McLaughlin guitar solo. It's like, there's some parts of that that are just weird, uh, but they need to be. That's what makes that album so innovative and beautiful. So maybe Caden isn't a pop song. Maybe Caden is Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Maybe Caden is Coltrane's Love Supreme or something. And uh, uh, therefore, there's a little bit more complexity, but it doesn't need to be a problem. Okay. Yeah, thank you a lot. Also, what's that oil called again? I remember I tried looking it up like a month ago and I never figured it out. You know, <laughs> these people don't start said. giving me commissions for the number of bottles of their oil I've sell sold. I'm going to, <laughs> I think it's called Bunyan Botanics or Bunyan Organics or something. It's Brummy Oil. Is like body oil? Because yeah, I I've mentioned it before and I've always been interested. But For you, I would recommend the Vata Massage Oil. You know, and, and there's like the pitta massage oil and kapha, kap, uh, you know, kapha massage oil. And there's the varying ones based on your Ayurvedic dosha or your constitution. Um, and they're nice oils. You know, you don't need them. You can just use your hands and hot water. The idea is just to feel the feet. Now, the oils are nice because they smell beautiful. It's like that whole self-care fad that's going around on the internet. Of course, yeah. it's, it's a good one. The idea, like, you know, in India, before they jump in the Ganga, the sadhus will really rub oil, brahmi oil into their skin just to kind of wake up the body. And then they will jump in the Ganga. In ancient China, and to, to this day, remember the tapping we learned from our Reiki initiation? That's from Qigong. Tap the thymus gland, tap the K12 gland, tap, 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 tap. And the idea is just to, yeah, tap, 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 right? Tap, tap, tap. Waking up, really waking up the body. Uh, just to get the blood flowing, the pores open. Uh, because 
we need to think with the body. We need to feel and think with the skin. You know, then we, we don't react or we don't act inharmoniously. We flow. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. But Most welcome. Yeah, thank you for the response too. Like, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lauren, please. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's a lot of things floating around up there, but I guess I'll just grab one and say that. Um, but I was actually kind of like, I guess, happy that Caden asked that question because it like came across a question. I was like, kind of like for what I would do, you know, I had an answer in my head as like what I always do. But then the way you explained it kind of gave me an insight of like almost like not necessarily a problem. I really don't see it as a problem, but almost like something that I did that could be done in a different way that like could maybe save Lauren a little hassling, but like, you know, doesn't really matter, but like it, it could like change kind of some of the like being so involved in like all the little tittles of the day. But um, like, uh, I think it was interesting because when we were talking about like Caden was saying that like they use meditation, like in a way that they're scared it will like escape the problems and stuff that I find when I'm like in a problem that's like so extreme and I do feel called to meditate I like try to like be as in the moment of the problem like which is like sometimes really painful because it's like I mean like sit through the suffering and like feel and experience it and stuff but I don't know I always like because I was trying to not run into the same problem of like I don't want to escape like this because this is not bad Mm -hmm. I mean this is an experience but like so I'm like sitting in this experience which sometimes is like for Lauren like why am I like sitting here in tears and pain and you know like um like this is suffering, but like, it's because you're a human, you know, but then what you are saying is like, you don't even have to view it as a problem or pain or anything. Like, who is it? It's just like simple reminders, stuff that it's like, you know it, but like, instead of like uh, putting yourself in saying, okay, we're going to sit through this and feel every second of this experience, you know, like, <laughs> like feel the mental breakdown or whatever it may be. Like, uh, it's almost like you don't have to have the mental breakdown in general, you know, like, uh, so I kind of, that's a good reminder. So I'm glad that Caden asked that question, which seemed like something that was like, Oh, well I would do this, but then it ended up being like more to learn. (laughs) I guess not more to learn, but more to like be reminded of, but yeah. So I enjoyed that too. A beautiful point about sometimes you just need to be reminded. And I love your strategy with it is to sit with it. Remember that Rumi poem, whenever you feel an emotion that is strong and painful and there are tears, the Rumi poem has always come to my aid, which is uh, the purpose of emotion is to let a streaming beauty flow through you. Call it spirit, call it elixir, call it the original agreement with God. Opening up to that brings tremendous delight or spaciousness or something so it's it's if we're suffering if there's an experience of suffering it's because we're resisting because we're pushing it away if we truly open up to the experience that's there it won't be perceived as suffering it it won't be happiness you know it won't be joy or excitement but it will be meaning a a profound kind of experience of ananda you might cry but it's elegant and beautiful 
you know, that despair stops becoming despair. So that's what it means to really be with it. But you're hinting at something so beautiful, Lauren, which is the things that you, you know you could have acted differently when they happened would have spared you a lot of those tears. So uh, we say in, in, in uh, Yoga Sutra, it says, we practice yoga to endure what cannot be cured and to cure what need not be endured. Do you see? So yeah. there is karma that we have accrued in past lives and earlier in this life that we must reap. Mm-hmm. You know, we've sowed the seeds, so we must reap. It's a metaphysical law. You must get your just desserts. So when they do come, maybe in the form of illnesses or difficult people or whatever, uh, we must learn to endure gracefully. Here's the predicament that human beings find themselves in though. When those karmic patterns come and, and, and ask to, for you to pay the dues, we often create more karma, right? We, we react, we freak out, we get angry, we feel righteous and we lash out at people and we get, and then more karma gets created. So hence samsara. So here's, here's our formula. If you can just do this, you would have solved for a lot of karma recurring. And the pattern is this. Whenever something occurs, the one rule that we should follow is to hold our tongue unless what we have to say is pleasant and constructive for others. You see, most of the damage we do comes in the form of speech. So chastity in speech or or restraint in speech is the most important. So never speak unless it is A, truthful and B, pleasant to others. Otherwise, hold silent, especially when you're angry. Never speak words in anger. That's a rule. If you feel any anger, any righteousness, you must not speak. You know, that's, that's the rule that we abide by. So silence is the way. Now, the interesting thing is if you feel anger, like if someone says something that really gets your goat, but if you stay silent, you watch that anger will turn to power. Like it will, be, it will spiritualize you. That anger, when held, is a much better celibacy than merely retaining the, the sex function. That anger turns into energy. It moves up the spine. And just give it maybe... 30 seconds, breathe into it, do a fourfold breath. Then you will see once you ride that wave, the come down is like, ah, and something changes in that person too. They might continue to shout and be upset and be angry, but when they notice you're like water, not like soda, no matter how much they shake you up, you're not going to blow. They start to go, oh my God. Okay. And, And your power subdues them ultimately. You know, so peace, joyousness, equanimity, these things have an actual effect on the world. Anger only hurts you and others. So we must be very careful, one, never to speak when hurt or angry. That's a hard one because usually, you know, when we're hurt, what's our tendency? We want to tell someone that they hurt us. We want to say, you did this or you did that. And you do that because you want them to stop. But when you tell them you're bad for hurting me, they don't stop. They just double down. because everyone's the good guy in their own story, right? So given that nothing we say really changes other people anyway, um, we might as well leave them to their karma and just stay calm. That's the first rule. You know, we try not to speak when angry. Silence is your best friend in enduring karma. Then, of course, the second thing is as you do to sit and just open up to it, experience it. It doesn't have to be suffering. That's beautiful. And if you can do that, you would have come a long way because there's no new karma. You're not creating any new karma. You're not acting out of anger. So that's going to be great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Nish. Thank you, Kaden. Good. These questions so practical. I really uh, appreciate you both asking them.
I already looked up that oil. <laughs> what? What? This special oil. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> what? What? Is there a coupon code I can use? <laughs> My friend has been trying to get me into what is it? Affiliate? What do you 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 send someone the link, and if they use your link to Amazon, you'll get a cut from that. It sounds so seedy and 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 I'd, I'm so snaky. Like, oh hey, I now have an incentive to sell you someone else's product for some measly cut of the. You know, it's ugh. It seems like there are so many ways that they manage to take advantage of creatives. No, no, not for me. <laughs> You're not going to get a link. Um, and, you know, there are some, some concerns about Amazon and some people don't feel uh, nice using Amazon. So now I don't even send links to books on Amazon. People should be able to find the books whatever way they want to find. Uh, but there are products out there that are worth consuming, you know. A lot of yogis would be like, don't consume. But I, I think there are plenty of things that can be very helpful in your sadhana. One thing, though, is a little bit of a pet peeve is uh, all the like um, Western pharmaceutical uh, supplement vitamin culture. You know, that's a bit of a pet peeve. In, in a lot of my spiritual discussions, people would be like, oh, but have you taken this supplement? You know, <laughs> are you doing this? Them a little bit. <laughs> What's that? I said, you almost just want to laugh at them a little bit, like not to be mean, but just like taking supplements for this. Thing. <laughs> I know that's my pet peeve. I'm like, you know, why drink coffee? You have meditation. Why take this thymine, what, theocene 7484? You have pranayama, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm never going to stop drinking matcha. I don't care how much love it's I have. It's delicious, though. It's not to make you better. It just tastes yummy. <laughs> no, that's the thing. It's like, if you're, if you're enjoying, you know, it's funny because it's not the coffee. It's not the puri or the, you know, the fat sugar. It's how we feel when we do it. So sipping the coffee, just tasting, oh, how beautiful. But drinking it because you can't function unless you have it, that's a whole different thing, you know? So, yeah, yeah. no, no. Matcha, Kaden will have a ceremony. I had, we'll, I'll get the whisk and we'll come and we'll whisk it and we'll do it the way the samurais and the zens did it, you know? We'll make matcha. Yes. <laughs> yes, please. We're becoming matcha fiends, like, <laughs> every day. Now, not because we need it, because it's absolutely delicious. And it's not going to be an addiction. <laughs> And it wasn't because it, it wasn't because it was half off at um, whatever place that we went to, but lessons. <laughs> yeah. No, I I'm waiting for chai to let me go, but I don't think it will happen. So I'm right there with you, Claire. I'll drink chai all night while you drink your coffee, and and you know what? I put sugar in my chai. I'll nicely put a nice bit of sugar, and there's nothing better than that warm milk with sugar, kind of like breast milk almost. It's the most nourishing, grounding drink that Indians drink all their life long. I'm trying to like harm reduction coffee. So I'm so lame when I go places. I'm like, do you have any like coffee instead? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, do you also have decaf coffee? It's like nine o'clock at night at a bar. I'm like, do you have coffee or what? <laughs> Get with it. I'll pay whatever you want. I'll pay, I'll pay whatever you want. Yeah. Procure me the coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, diet is funny. They do talk about it uh, as the beginning path in Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga. There's a lot of mention on diet. Like we have to be very careful what we eat because everything has a vibration. But once we get a little more advanced in the spiritual path, um, really doesn't matter what goes into the mouth. You know, that's why the Tantrics had that ceremony where they would happily ingest, you know, the five jewels. We won't talk about it now. 
We don't need it. It's polite society. But you might ask, it's a health concern to ingest those things. And the tantric say, not at our level of spiritual practice. I think I could do it, to be honest. You think you could do it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a spirit, Claire. I think you can too. I don't doubt that Claire's digestive fire is up to any task. I think it's like over there. Oh, is that Emma? Hi, Emma. Yeah, it's Emma. Caden's sibling. Hey, Emma. <laughs> I've missed you. I'm still working on that book, by the way, the introduction to yoga philosophy that I promised you many, many weeks ago. Emma is smiling with admiration and joy. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> All right. Clara, please. Thank you, though, Nish. Thank you, Kaden. Thank you. Thank you, um, Nish and everybody, Kaden and Lauren. It's so nice to see you. I'm just yeah. really happy. <laughs> um, I just wanted to share a little bit about, like, we're talking about gurus today. And please. when I had, like, I don't know what to call it. I was so disturbed when we were talking about forgiveness and then the demand that I felt was being put on you to teach forgiveness. And I was like, this can't be taught. <laughs> this is such a tall order. Why, why, why would you ask? Of course, that's not flippant. And I was like freaking out about it. And I probably sent you like a frantic Instagram message. Actually, I know I did, <laughs> but uh, no, it's because I was thinking about that as like, um, I thought about it for a couple of days about how like only a master can tell you to forgive and you do it. You know, only a, only a master can say that make the blind see or make the lame walk. Like only somebody, you can tell people to forgive all you want, but only a master can like make you. So I'm I'm just glad we had this talk about gurus today. But then I also want to follow up. Remember we talked about gurus not being embodied, like disembodied or not being people. Um, and then I think we circled around like nature as a guru or like the vibration of nature. Do you remember this? And yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, definitely remember Kaz and, and and you were having that conversation with many, many, I think it was like the second or third lesson in the Tantric series. We were talking about gurus and disembodied gurus. Yes, so can nature be the ultimate guru, you know? Um, so the, the, the thing about disembodied gurus, yeah, the trees, you know, that, that conversation, remember? Yeah, um, the thing about them though, the disembodied gurus, it's it's... Remember we told that story about the astral realms where I got my ass handed to me and all that. That was that day, right? But yeah, the thing about disembodied gurus is um, for guru yoga to work, for it to actually be guru yoga, like a sadguru, um, the guru must be a very real and constant presence in our life. So we must have a really personal relationship with the guru. That's the unique function of a guru. Like horses have horse gurus. I don't know, you know, stones have mineral gurus or something. The idea is as long as you're human, you need a human guru because the human guru is able to address um, your predicament on a cultural level because ultimately the guru tries to break through cultural sediment. Now nature can do that. So going into nature, sometimes we're confronted with a greater level of harmony. As Lao Tzu said, look at nature. It never hurries, yet everything is accomplished. See, in that instance, Lao Tzu is saying the nat nature can teach you a new way of seeing culture, of seeing your role in it. So three points to make here. One, each of us has 
a specific guru. So of course, that guru is Brahman, it's Shiva, you yourself are Shiva. But on a relative level, each soul, and even on a Samkhyan or qualified monism level, like each soul is distinct. And every distinct soul has a unique um, guru, you know, that matches onto that soul. It's, it's a unique being. It's not like, you know, it, it would be a unique tree maybe, but it's a unique soul that matches to that student. Now, given that, that guru is always present in your life as people, as circumstances, as trees. So behind an experience with nature, what you were able to see in that experience was the guru's grace. Behind the dream, what you were able to experience and learn in that dream was the guru's grace. So the guru in a way is like a puppet master orchestrating the events in our life. So we derive the teachings that we need to derive. It's almost like in the new Star Wars movies. I will not comment. This is a very polarizing thing to talk about. But in the new Star Wars movies, eventually Kylo Ren learns that behind all of his preliminary experiences with the Sith, it was the Pal Emperor Palpatine, right? And he had orchestrated it all. Okay, and, and it's exactly that. You know, eventually when we meet our guru, we go, oh, it was you who appeared to me in the form of that lover. It was you that appeared to me in the form of that tree, you know? But the guru has to be a living embodiment. Uh, and, and I don't say embodiment, but a living presence in our life because we have to follow up with them. And, and in a way, it's hard to do that with dreams and trees because they come and they go and that specific moment in nature changes. We can't really take our problems or questions to that. You know, It's good and helpful to have a guru who you can have a rapport with, who can speak to you, who can work out your doubts about scripture. So if you look at the four functions we described today, um, the natural disembodied guru might be good at transmitting presence. In fact, that's one of the best things nature does. It transmits just being, you know, but it might not be able to create for you a ceremony that addresses your specific cultural hangups, you know, and it might not be able to clarify points in scripture to help you with your intellectual life, you know, and it might not be a living example for you as a human being to another human being as to how we can be in this world. You know, so there might be some sense, something in us that says, yeah, it's easy for you to say you're a spirit or you're a tree. You know what I mean? Uh, so we do need someone in the flesh sometimes to show us. So that's some of the disclaimers. Also, um, it's good to feel longing. So as Anthony described, there's what we call viraha. Viraha is the intense, uh, what? Viral? No. <laughs> viraha is the intense longing for the divine. It's very sweet. Ruby sings, listen to the song of this flute. It sings the song of separation. It's a great feeling of oh, even that all the joys in the world do not compare to one tear shed in that longing feeling, right? So that's good. But sometimes in that longing, we come to have a little bit of deluded thinking. We can delude ourselves. So say we read a book about Swami Vivekananda. We're so taken up by him that we imagine him to be our guru. And maybe we do have dreams about him. And we say, oh, to everyone, I am the student of Swami Vivekananda. But not really. It's not enough to have a strong affinity for some long dead teacher. It's not enough because that teacher, while can be an inspiration to you, is not able to address your unique concerns in life, you know? So that's what a tantric ritual is. That's why it's uniquely difficult to learn tantra except from a guru because you can't just read a book. That book, even if it details accurately a ceremony, if you reproduce the ceremony, it would have little to no effect on us today since that ceremony took into consideration the caste system. Like imagine uh, doing the uh, Maituna ceremony today 
have sex, extramarital sex, right? Now, this would be a good ceremony for a Brahmin who would not even look upon a woman of that stature. He wouldn't look upon, he, he finds her so reprehensible because of his attachment to social strata. Now, if you have him, this aristocrat, engage in sexual intercourse with someone who he considers subhuman, that might free him from his cultural hangup, right? But if you have any old, you know, person today do that, they will do it with relish and it will only further exacerbate their lust. It's going to be like, oh, tonight is my tuna night. All right. I get to gather in a circle with a bunch of people and strangers and I might get to have sex with someone without even taking them to dinner. I win. You know, like, so obviously that ritual wouldn't carry. Imagine if we gave meat, mamsa and wine to your everyday American. Now remember, meat and wine would have appalled the Brahmin. The idea of drinking such a substance, fish, meat, wine, ugh. So they are forced to drink it. Just so they can like break and shatter. The, it's like in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, you know, when he had to become a worldling in order to break out of his attachment to his Brahman, Brahmin framework. So we can't do those rituals anymore. Similarly, um, you need a living guru preferably in the flesh, because such a guru is able to meet you where you are. That's why we prefer living gurus. That is not to say that the living guru comes always in physical form. The living guru might come in a disembodied form. But in that case, it's got to be a very like, felt and strong presence, like in the case of Babaji or, or something like that. It can't be a one-off encounter, you know. So with that instance, with my grandfather, for instance, that is a good good example for skepticism because you might ask, well, maybe you kind of sense that he died and maybe it was a grief dream. You know, it was very close to you and you spent most of your childhood with him. He died. Of course, you might've had a grief dream. Maybe it's wishful thinking, you know, and, and that's a good kind of inquiry. And the test for that is, can I go to my granddad and actually talk to him and feel his presence um, regarding various affairs in my spiritual life? And uh, I found in my own experience that, I get immediate feedback whenever I'm deluding myself. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do this thing and I'll do it in the name of Tantra and, and he'll laugh at me, you know, or I won't own money, but I do want to build a yoga studio. So maybe I should enjoy the savings account growing up and then he'll laugh at me, you know? So it's like that. It's like, it, it has to be a lived presence. Yeah, thank you. That, that answers my question. Um, yeah. Mm. It is there's two things happening. I think I get squirrely whenever things get very prescribed. Mm. It freaks me out. I don't know why. Yeah. I think like then that because that to me is a concept structure. Yes. And and that's super spooky. Um yeah, that's all. Yeah. The other, yeah. That's all. Hi. No, and, and exactly what Tantra tries to address. So it, it becomes kind of ironic when the practice meant to break out of concepts itself becomes a concept. You know, so the, the thing about Tantra, the path of Tantra, the razor's edge to walk is the balance between spontaneity and tradition. So Tantra is a highly traditional system. It really looks to scripture and it looks to traditional forms, yet it encourages ecstatic rapture and, and in the heat of the moment expression. And it's that fine balance because too much of one, you get rigidity and 
you're starved, your oxygen, oxygen gets cut off and too much of the other and you lose form and you just devolve into, you degenerate into, you know, so definitely you're, you would prefer to be on the latter end of the spectrum than the former. And that's better. If you have to be on one end, be on the latter end of the spectrum because rigidity can, t- but to, to do Tantra is to weave the two, to balance tradition and spontaneity, to balance the mind and its thought structure with the body and its energetic structures, and ultimately to reconcile them in one, that Shiva Shakti kind of union. So um, yes, we do have these concepts about gurus, um, and they're only meant to nudge and guide, not stifle and lock us into any one form of being. Definitely. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, Anthony, off to the desert for Anthony. Good night to you, my friend. Blessings. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Alex, please. Yeah, I um, uh, thank you for everyone's comments because, yeah, I've been, I, I've been, uh, I think, probably struggling with this idea of the guru more than other, uh, more than other aspects. I think this may be most of all the things, but, um, I, I, in, you know, thinking about your, your examples and you're talking about Ramakrishna and even, you know, Krishna who doesn't really come off, like he's not really playing a, doesn't come off like a guru towards them so much. Like he's a cousin, he's a friend there. He's very much like, I'm the same as, you know? Um, and then the, I, no, I'm not going to remember the name, but the one who's like, Oh, I'm your guru to Ram Das. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder if like, maybe, uh, one thing that might perhaps make it just less scary to me if if there's some you know that the guru isn't necessarily perhaps perhaps there would be reason to be skeptical of somebody who is very much attached to that idea of themselves and sort of like rolling with that a little too much i don't know if that's fair to say yes yes no the guru must walk the walk in other words the guru must be a shining example of spiritual life so if you detect any kind of ego hang up or whatever, um, it's delicate because sometimes the guru might be able to fulfill the function really well uh, because of their shakti or whatever, but on a personality level, you don't really get what they're about. That can happen. Some gurus, like for instance, Chogyang Trungpa, for instance, um, he was a profound guru for many, uh, but according to Ram Das and many of the people in his circle, he used to come on stage with a pitcher of water, only it wasn't water. It was straight vodka or sake. And you know how he used to dress in a Western suit. He was trained as a Tibetan Lama, trained in Buddhist uh, metaphysical debate. He went to Oxford and he trained as an Oxford philosopher. So as a master of philosophy, he would dress in this Western garb. He didn't, he wasn't bald or long haired, really challenged what you thought of as a Lama, which I guess was his point as a tantric. And then he would come and he would drink. He would openly seduce women. He would gamble. And he would say he was taking his Western students through that, you know, trying to get them through that. And so Ram Das, very perplexed by this behavior, once asked another Tibetan Lama about that conduct. And the Lama said, if, and, and remember, Chogyang Trungpa, Trungpa is seen as a tulku, meaning he's a reincarnation of a very high being. So the Lama, whom Ram Das was talking to, said about Chongyang, Chongyang, he said, If you go to the top of the mountain and you see a bird flying off the peak, don't think you can do the same. Isn't that interesting? He was kind of hinting at perhaps Chongyam is on a different level. But how do you know? You know, how do you know? Like, what if that person is just 
just as bad as any of us. I mean, by behavior, they seem to be as trapped. Now, the thing about Chong Yang, though, is as I've heard, I've never actually seen him give a speech. I do have his text, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which I thought was very lucid and good. Um, the thing about him is he would come on stage get sloshed, get absolutely hammered, but deliver perfectly lucid lectures on Buddhist philosophy. And this is not a philosophy you can kind of slop your way through. It's very precise, very clear. And he could deliver that. He delivered. That's one thing about Chong Yam. He really delivered, you know, and, and he was a profound teacher for many. So the question is, was he just uh, Acharya then? Did he just understand Buddhist philosophy so well and being a master of philosophy that he was, was he just able to do it drunk? I, I certainly can you know, I, I remember I did have one lecture in which I rightly got hammered. <laughs> I got absolutely hammered on wine and I came on. I thought it was a great lecture. I listened to it back and I was like, yeah, all right. Um, so I see how it could be done. I see how you could, you know, learn a philosophy or a system of thought so well that you could do it totally hammered. And I remember some shows I played under the influence of several things in which you could do it. If you know the guitar well enough, you can do it. The question though is, um, is that really a sign of mastery? Is your ability to lucidly deliver a lecture really a sign? You know, because back then I was definitely still trapped in some of those things. Um, so yes, you're right to question it. If a guru cannot walk the walk, then you must question his, her, their talk. And Vivekananda unflinchingly, unequivocally makes the point. The guru must be of profound moral integrity. And that's the view that I hold. We must not accept, I believe, gurus who fall short of the ideals that they prescribe for their students. They can't make exceptions for themselves. They can't say, oh, because I'm a guru. I'm a bird. I can fly off the peak. But you st- no, no, no. The guru is you your highest expression. And as such, the guru can't be doing the things that you do when you're trapped. The guru should be living the way you would live when you're free. No? So maybe another argument to support this claim is we don't remember those gurus. This isn't to say that fame is an indication of worth, but the the gurus that seem to really affect us, that seem to really move us, are gurus like Christ, like the Buddha, like Rumi, like Maharaji, like Ramakrishna, like Ramana Maharshi. All of those gurus were perfectly free of any material stain. They did not engage in activities of greed or lust. Whereas the, the more crazy wisdom people like Drungpa Kinle or you know, some of the more tantric teachers, we don't remember their names. You see? And I'm not, I'm not making an ad populum fallacy here by saying, okay, because this person had a big following, therefore, no, I'm saying irrespective of the following that the Christ had, there's something about the message of the Christ, the purity, clarity, and profundity of that, that speaks to us on a level, a little more deeper, a little more deeper of a level, a little more integrity than someone who's like philandering and getting drunk all the time. You know, we, we expect more from our gurus and rightly so, Alex. Yeah, good, good question. And, uh, you know, the thing about Krishna, you're right. He's Arjuna's homie, right? He's just Arjuna's friend. And they played as children. Can you imagine the idea of just playing with someone who later turns out to be God? <laughs> like an avatar? <laughs> imagine Peter, like, looking at Jesus across the dinner table at Thanksgiving and be like, Mom, you know, Jesus is calling himself the son of God again. And Mom's like, yeah. I mean, you know, can you imagine when you just realize that? 
Um, so yeah, the guru, and, and, and this is the idea again with uh, God's play or, or Shiva Leela or Krishna Leela, the idea that God is very playful in that way. Sometimes the guru appears in the form of a child. You know, for instance, Guru Nanak, his child was an incarnation of Shiva who taught him. You know, so as a father, he learned from his child. Krishna was the teacher to many. He was seen as a guru, you know, in, in his time. He was seen by many as a spiritual authority, a really powerful being. Um, and many people deferred to him. So he was a guru as a friend, as a cousin, as all of that. Um, he was a guru to Yashoda, his mother. He was a guru to Radha, his lover. He was a guru, you know, to his friend, Shukadeva. Like, like the, the life of Krishna shows, shows you that a guru can take any form of relationship. But sometimes it can take the teacher-student too. In the case of the rishis to the students, in the case of like Yukteswar to Yogananda, Maharaji to Ramdas, that certainly wasn't a familial relationship. It wasn't a childhood friend relationship. It was a teacher-student relationship. That was so much more. You see? Yes. Thank you. Yes, great question. And Claire asks, is a guru always a guru intentionally? Um, and, you know, there's a kind of kind of distinction that they make with three kinds of beings, three kinds of realized masters. I think maybe four. One is the kind that does not teach nor acts. So the kind of spiritual master who, having attained the highest state, goes off to a cave somewhere and meditates. They don't teach anyone. They're in isolation. They don't come into contact with people. And they don't, like, sew or act or put out books or anything. That kind of guru is still a guru because he, she, they are frequency holders. They just hold frequency. as It's Eckhart Tolle's phrase, but they just hold frequency for the world. And, and the Tibetans believe this. They believe that as they practice in the mountains, the vibration of that will go back into the earth. The prayer flags are flapping. The drums are being spun and the prayers are being spun. And all of that is going into the world and gradually liberating the world. They're now chanting, oh, you know, and, and, and that idea is you just have to be, you have to just sit in that vibration, even if you're far away. That's one kind. The second kind is one who does not teach, you know, does not offer scriptural lessons um, and does not even go around claiming to be a guru, but just continues to do what they did before they were enlightened. Like that case of the butcher, you know, in that, in that one, uh, the butcher sutra, where the butcher, he expounds Vedanta effortlessly, but he's just content to be a butcher. You know, so someone might just build houses or I don't know, plan weddings or something, but they're a master, right? So whatever they do is suffused with that vibration. So that's their teaching. The shoe is their teaching. The third kind is uh, maybe like a quieter teacher, a teacher who takes on four or five students, maybe even one student, maybe just their child or just their spouse. You know, so it's a guru to one person, a husband to a wife, wife to a husband, partner to a partner. Then there's another guru called a jagat guru, world teacher. And a world teacher is someone like Shankaracharya or uh, Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, the Buddha, Christ. These are world saviors, world teachers. Uh, and these are the four paths that realized masters often take. You know, so which one will you do? It's your choice. You can do whatever you want. And then in the Buddhist canon, they have a lot. They have arhats who are profoundly enlightened beings who are just kind of off to one side. They're done. They fucked off in a way. No longer in samsara. They're just in this abode of arhatship. Then there are the bodhisattvas, 
And there are various kinds of bodhisattvas, wrathful ones, compassionate ones, wisdom ones, who sometimes take incarnations in this world, as in the case of Padmasambhava, aka Guru Rinpoche. Some of them take incarnations in other bardos, you know, so these are all options available and it's very rich in the Vajrayana or Mahayana Buddhist tradition as to what kind of guru you will be. Now, if you look to the life of the Buddha himself, it seems like in the beginning, the Buddha set out to be a Jagat Guru. But no, actually, not really. The Buddha set out to solve suffering and the way it's portrayed is for everyone, right? So the Buddha leaves his palace to figure out once and for all, for humanity, the solution to suffering. But maybe it was a personal quest. He just wanted to figure it out for himself. Now, uh, we're told upon attaining Buddhahood, upon attaining Nirvana, he wandered about content for a few days. You know, he just walked up and down the Ganga. He strolled around here and there. Um, he didn't immediately go and teach. And the first person he taught was his friends from back then, his five friends um, who he practiced austerities with. You know, so he just went back and taught his friends. So maybe he didn't intend to be a Jagat Guru. We hear though, that people eventually sought him out, that they came to him and that he couldn't just, he couldn't help but teach. And like you said, Claire, in that text message on Instagram a while ago, it's like not even a choice at that point. The flower emits fragrance, not by conscious choice. The fragrance attracts followers just because, you know? So uh, you see a world renouncer Ramana Maharshi wanted to be that. He went to Arunchala and just sat, right? He turned into the second class, which is someone who just doesn't teach. He just sits and, and, and people came to him because they felt that. Then he turned into the third kind, which is a guru to just a few people. Ultimately, he became a Jagat guru. Was that a choice on his part? No, it was a natural unfoldment of events. He remained uninvolved. The Buddha was uninvolved with all of that. It's just the Buddha's body and mind conveyed the fragrance of his Buddhahood. So... Let's look at Vivekananda. He had Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And by his account, uh, he went into the room and just sat there. He didn't want to do anything. He was done. He just wanted to sit in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Ramakrishna scolded him. He took him out of the state and he locked the state. He said, I won't let you go back there. As a guru, you can do that sometimes. Ramakrishna took the keys from the kingdom and said, you will not be able to attain that state again until you finish your work in the world. Ramakrishna scolded him. He said, I had higher hopes for you. I thought, and these were his words, that you were going to be a great banyan tree in whose shade thousands would come for shelter. But instead, you've turned into nothing but a selfish. You, know? <laughs> you see, Ramakrishna schooled him. So Ramakrishna seemed to say, Vivekananda, I know you want to choose that, but you should choose this. Another thing is, Shankaracharya and his guru's guru, Gaurapada, taught non-duality very differently. Gaurapada was staunch non-dualist. Where Shankaracharya, even though he was very loyal to non-duality, still kind of waxed dualistic sometimes. He would write all these poems. So some people ask, why was Shankaracharya a little more lenient than Gaurapada? The answer is this. Gaurapada was a daredevil, meaning Gaurapada was a teacher's teacher. His, his following were the highest, most dedicated spiritual seekers. He wasn't for everybody. If I taught many, if I taught many people Gaurapada, they would run the other way. They would call me a world negating, life negating. You know, it's like, they won't get it. It's just too, too kind of. But Shankaracharya was a Jagat Guru. He had to teach the world. So he had to maybe tone down his teachings a bit for that. Yeah, so. Yes, most welcome, Claire. 
Kaz, how are you? Anything from you, Kaz? Not to disturb you. No, I'm doing well. I'm, I am getting ready for bed. Yes, Thank yes. you for everything. It's a wonderful teaching on gurus. Thank you so much, Kaz, for coming. It's uh, This is nice. It's really special to celebrate Guru Purnima like this. Thank you all for coming to spe- celebrate such an auspicious uh, day. It's already that day in India. So happy, blessed Guru, Guru Purnima to you all. Full moon in, in what? In, uh, what is it in? I don't know. Libra? Is it? Who knows? In something or other. <laughs> but I think this is a good uh, good place for us to head off to our respective bardos. <laughs> Thank you, Nash. The moon's in Capricorn right now. <laughs> okay. Full moon in Capricorn. May you have a blessed one. And uh, I can't wait to see you on Monday. We're talking on Monday um, about the symbols of South Asian philosophy. So we'll look at all the images, you know, of the gods and goddesses and try to understand what each of those symbols mean to get a map of the iconography, if you will. Yes. All right. Good night, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Sangha. Good night. Brothers, sisters, friends. Good night. Good night. Good night.